this uh, hearing of the subcommittee on the uh, yes, yes, Western Hemisphere, yes, transnational yes, crime, yes, civilian yes, security, yes. democracy, human rights, and global women's issues will come to order. Uh, today's hearing is titled Understanding the Impact of U.S. Policy Changes on Human Rights and Democracy in Cuba. And I want to begin by welcoming Assistant Secretary of State for the Western Hemisphere, uh, Roberta Jacobson, and Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, Tom Malinowski, we appreciate your service to our country and your attendance here today. I'd like to note that the committee invited two other administration witnesses to appear today. They were the reported negotiators of this deal with the Castro government, Mr. Ben Rhodes and Mr. Ricardo Zuniga from the National Security Council. Unfortunately, the White House Counsel's Office informed us that they would not be allowed to testify at this hearing. And I find this concerning given the fact that these are the two individuals who the administration put forward in negotiating the deal. Um, but we'll move forward from there. We have two excellent panels today. The first, of course, is the official panel that you see uh, seated and ready to go. And then we're going to hear from a number of human rights activists, democracy activists on the island of Cuba who will talk to us about the changes. Let me, let me preface this by saying that I believe every member of this committee this morning as I do the vast majority of Americans and policymakers, share the, the goals uh, of democracy and freedom on the island of Cuba. In fact, the administration, in announcing this policy, stated that the purpose of this new policy is to support the Cuban people to freely determine their own future, to freely determine their political future, and by that I take it to mean democracy, which we all share, and also to freely determine their economic future. I would point out that a free Cuban people have a right to choose any economic model they want, although there's one that I would suggest. It is up to them to choose that future. So this is a goal we all share. And the question for us here today as we review these policy changes is how effective will these policy changes be in bringing about this shared goal? And so today we're going to analyze both the process by which this arrangement was arrived at, and we're also going to talk about how effective these policies may or may not be in achieving the stated goals. I think it is no secret, and I have publicly stated, that I have res deep reservations and, in many instances, direct opposition to many of the changes that we're here today, for the sim that we're going to review here today, for the simple reason that I believe that they will not be effective at bringing about the sort of political opening on the island of Cuba that all of us desire for the Cuban people. You know, the Cuban people are the only people in this hemisphere that have not had a free and fair election in the last decade and a half. Uh, they deserve the right to have that just like any other people do. They are no less deserving of freedom and democracy than the people of Guatemala, Honduras, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and a host of other nations, all of whom at some point over the last decade have at least once had the ability to freely choose their leaders. And the notion that somehow we should be more patient with Cuba than all these other societies is quite frankly unfair and offensive. And so the goal of this hearing here today is to understand these changes, to understand, first of all, how it came about, what was the process by which they was negotiated, and second, how effective could these policies be in effectuating the, the change uh, that we all want for the island of Cuba. With that, uh, I recognize the ranking member, uh, Senator Boxer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this crucial hearing. And I want to give a warm welcome to our distinguished witnesses, some of whom have traveled a very long way to be with us today. I am very pleased to see Miriam Lava, whom I first met on a trip to Cuba in 2002. 
President Obama's announcement in December that the U.S. would begin the process of normalizing relations with Cuba will have wide-ranging impacts, but today's hearing will focus specifically on its impact on human rights and democracy in Cuba. By the way, a very legitimate concern. For more than 50 years, the U.S. pursued a sanctions policy designed to isolate Cuba. The goal was to undermine the Castro regime and promote human rights and democratic reform. And I well remember when that policy went into play. And I did not have gray hair at that time. That's how long ago it was. This policy has failed to achieve any of these goals. In fact, I believe it has done just the opposite. Instead of isolating Cuba, America has isolated itself when it came to this particular policy, alienating regional and international partners. For the past 23 years, the United Nations General Assembly has voted to condemn the U.S.'s unilateral embargo against Cuba. So rather than undermining the Castro regime, America's embargo has helped the Castros maintain authoritarian control over Cuba by restricting the free flow of information and contacts between Americans and Cuban citizens. And it's given the Castro regime a very convenient scapegoat for the suffering of the Cuban people. Far from ushering in democratic change and improved human rights for Cuba's 11 million citizens, Cuba remains a one-party communist state that continues to restrict the most basic rights of its citizens and targets its opponents using intimidation, harassment, surveillance, and arbitrary arrest and detention. It is long past time to abandon this failed policy of the past, and that is why I strongly support President Obama's decision to chart a new course in U.S.-Cuba relations. Now, it's important to note that President Obama follows in a long line of U.S. leaders who pursued diplomatic breakthroughs after years of isolation and conflict, whether it was President Nixon going to China or President Reagan working toward peace with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev or Senator McCain and then Senator Kerry working with President Clinton to normalize relations with Vietnam. These breakthroughs did not result in immediate change, and even years later, as we speak, these efforts have not brought an end to repression or corruption or human rights abuses, but they did provide an opening, a chance for dialogue and real engagement with the people of these nations. So I strongly agree with the President that the best way to promote American values and ideals and to empower Cuban citizens as they work toward a free and democratic Cuba is through a policy of engagement, not isolation. And I believe polls show the American people agree with that. A letter signed by 74 Cuban citizens, including prominent political prisoners, bloggers, independent journalists, clerics, and intellectuals in May 2010 underscores this point. It states that lifting U.S. restrictions would allow America to, quote, first serve as witnesses to the suffering of the Cuban people, second, be even more sensitized to the need for changes in Cuba, and third, offer solidarity and a bridge to facilitate the transition we Cubans so greatly desire, unquote. Now, I know not everybody in Cuba agrees with that, but these were 74 Cuban citizens who were, some of whom were prominent political prisoners and clerics. Independent journalist Lillian Ruiz recently said that, quote, this flow of people who are going to come, along with the increase in the remittances, 
means the country's return to normalcy. The Cuban government is going to weaken. The only thing left is the repression and the restrictions. This will make people more accurately identify the origin of the difficulties, unquote. So as the U.S. furthers its engagement with the Cuban people, we'll continue to press leaders in Cuba on human rights because all Cubans deserve the right to live without fear of violence or intimidation. That is a right of all people, all people, not just the people of Cuba, but certainly the people of Cuba who have been so repressed. And we will mobilize our regional and international partners in this effort. And we know this policy isn't going to change Cuba overnight. But we have spent the past five decades pursuing a policy that hasn't worked. I still remember my trip to Cuba in 2002. We would approach people to ask them their views. They would literally run away from us. They were too afraid to speak to us. How is our nation well served by a policy that doesn't even allow us to engage with the people we seek to empower? Now, in closing, I want to leave you with a thought. There's an old saying, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Now, I know no one here is insane. We are all quite sane, and we are all working toward the same thing. And I hope we can unite around this. We owe it to the Cuban citizens who truly aspire to see a free and democratic Cuba to give this new policy a chance. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Boxer. We are uh, joined today by both the chairman and the ranking member of the full Foreign Relations Committee. I wanted to recognize them for any comments they might have, Mr. Chairman. I just want to thank the leadership of this committee, the chairman and ranking member. Uh, I know that we expect uh, the subcommittee leadership, which we have outstanding leadership on all of our subcommittees, uh, to have robust uh, hearings what you're doing today. I thank you for the way you frame this. I know there's a lot of divergent views on uh, what has happened relative to the administration's changes in policy on Cuba. And I hope that through these hearings, um, we will converge uh, on a policy that is good for America. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, for holding the hearing along with the ranking member. And, um, and thank you for this opportunity. Uh, on uh, an issue that I have followed for some time. Uh, let me be cl as clear today on this issue as I was in December, uh, that 18 months of secret negotiations uh, produce a bad deal, a bad deal for the Cuban people. While it may have been done with the best of intentions, in my view, we've compromised bedrock principles for virtually no concessions. And I would just say, I don't want to relive 50 years of engagement with China that has brought us forced abortions, prison camp labor, one-child policy, ethnic cleansing in Tibet, exile of the Dalai Lama, uh, and most recently, uh, repression in Hong Kong's democracy, as well as uh, arrests of human rights activists and political dissidents. 15 years, 50 years of those engagements, maybe we can say that we're doing business with China but we can't really hold up democracy and human rights as a great success story of that engagement. If that's what we hope for the Cuban people, then it's a sad day. At the end of the day, 53 political prisoners were released while so many more remain in jail. And the Cuban people who have suffered most under the regime still have zero guarantees for any basic freedoms. I'm also concerned that the 53 prisoners were not released unconditionally 
and continue to force legal hurdles, and that several of them have been rearrested, including Marcelino Abru Boneda, who was violently beaten by Cuban security the day after Christmas and detained for two weeks. I'm concerned that the President announced that the International Committee of the Red Cross and the United Nations would be granted access in Cuba. Yet we know from the State Department briefings that they will be allowed to travel to Havana, but only to discuss prison conditions with regime officials and won't be given access to Cuban jails or Cuban prisoners, which does nothing to improve human rights conditions in Cuba. I'm concerned that there was not one substantial step towards transparent democratic elections, improved human rights, freedom of assembly, or the ability to form independent political parties and independent trade unions. Ironically, just two weeks after the announcement, the regime arrested more than 50 people who tried to speak about the hopes for the future of their country. That's all they tried to do. The deal achieved nothing for Americans whose family members have been victims of the Castro regime's crimes and terrorism, or for the thousands of U.S. Uh, citizens that hold over $6 billion in claims for properties and businesses confiscated by the Castros or the Americans that are still waiting for Cuba to settle the $2 billion in judgments rendered by U.S. courts against the Castro regime. I'm concerned that we released a Cuban spy convicted of conspiracy to commit murder. He gets to go back to Cuba, and we get no movement on the dozens of U.S. fugitives living under asylum in Cuba, including Joanne Chesimard, who is still on the FBI's list of most wanted terrorists for, convicting, uh, for killing a New Jersey state trooper. Why was her return not part of the deal? And I'm concerned that in December 17th of this past year, an article in Political, Congressman James McGovern said that Raul Castro admitted to giving the order to shoot down two private airplanes with U.S. citizens on board in 1996. Quote, he said, I gave the order, Castro said. I'm the one responsible. And yet this is who we are negotiating with. And now Raul Castro is demanding the return of Guantanamo, a full list of U.S. concessions, including compensation for the impact of the embargo, eliminating our democracy programs, at least in today's uh, press accounts that I was reading, and he concedes nothing. So how much more are we willing to give? How much more are we willing to do to help the Castro regime fill the coffers of its military monopolies while the Cuban people still struggle to make ends meet? And that's why, among many other reasons, Mr. Chairman, I think this is a bad deal, and I ask unanimous consent that the rest of my statement be included in the record. Without objection. Okay, we're ready to move to our testimony, and with that, I recognize uh, Secretary Jacobson. Um, your full statement is in the record. We'd ask if you could keep the statement to about five minutes or so so we can get into the questioning. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Boxer, and members of the committee for the opportunity to testify today on the new approach to U.S.-Cuban policy. I appreciate your engagement on issues related to Cuba and to the Western Hemisphere, and I know your strong commitment to democratic values, human rights, and expanding social and economic opportunity in the Americas. I also want to thank this committee for its assistance in welcoming the long overdue return of Alan Gross to his family. Mr. Gross's five long years of detention, during that time the administration worked closely with many members of Congress from both chambers and both parties to secure his release. As the President and the Secretary have said, we're also grateful for the essential roles of Canada, Pope Francis, and the Vatican in reaching an agreement that made Mr. Gross's freedom possible. On December 17th, 
the President announced the new policy towards Cuba. Our previous approach to relations with Cuba over half a century, though rooted in the best of attentions, failed to empower the Cuban people. Instead, it isolated us from democratic partners in this hemisphere and around the world, and was used by the Cuban government as, a po as an excuse for restrictions on its citizens. As a result, those most deprived were the Cuban people. The President's initiative looks forward, and it's designed to promote changes that support universal human rights and fundamental freedoms for every Cuban. We also seek to promote our other national interests. These steps emphasize the value of people-to-people -people contact and very specific forms of increased commerce. We're already seeing indications that our updated approach gives us a greater ability to engage other nations in the hemisphere and around the world in promoting respect for fundamental freedoms in Cuba. From the beginning of this administration, we have sought to support the Cuban people in freely determining their own future, their own political and their own economic future, because ultimately it will be the Cuban people themselves who drive political and economic reforms. That is why we lifted restrictions to make it easier for Cuban Americans to travel and send remittances to their families in Cuba, and opened new pathways for academic, religious, and people-to-people -people exchanges. And these changes created powerful new connections between our two countries. Our new steps build on this foundation by increasing authorized travel and commerce and the flow of information to, from, and within Cuba. The regulatory changes will increase the financial resources to support the Cuban people and the emerging Cuban private sector. They will also enable U.S. companies to expand telecommunications and Internet access into Cuba. U.S. policy will no longer be a barrier to connectivity in Cuba. Two weeks ago, I made a historic trip to Cuba, one that helped me understand the burden and hope embodied in this policy when average Cubans and Cuban Americans wished me luck or said God bless you and encouraged our efforts. During talks, we were clear that our governments have both shared interests and sharp differences. On practical issues such as establishing direct mail, counter-narcotics cooperation, and oil spill mitigation, among others, we agreed to continue dialogue and increase cooperation. But this administration is under no illusions about the nature of the Cuban government. I also raised with our Cuban interlocutors our concerns about its harassment, use of violence, and arbitrary detention of Cuban citizens peacefully expressing their views. I met with dissidents, entrepreneurs, and independent media voices to talk about what they need from their government and what they need from us. I raised several elements that presently inhibit the work of our U.S. interest section, including travel restrictions on our diplomats, limits on staffing and local access to the mission, and problems receiving shipments. The successful resolution of these issues will enable a future U.S. Embassy to provide services commensurate with our other diplomatic missions around the world. Having just seen our diplomats in Havana in action, I hope you won't object if I take this opportunity to salute their tireless work to advance U.S. interests on the island. These dedicated public servants have done their jobs under often difficult circumstances. We've only just begun the official talks on normalizing relations, which will take considerably longer than this first step of the reestablishment of relations. But even while we do so, we will continue to encourage our allies to take every public and private opportunity to support respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms in Cuba 
and I encourage members visiting Cuba to expand their engagement with the independent voices in Cuban civil society and to engage effectively on human rights and democracy. We know there's a diversity of views in the Congress on this issue, and we hope we can work together to find common ground towards our shared goal of enabling the Cuban people to determine their own future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Secretary Malinowski. Thank you so very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, Senator Boxer, members, for, uh, for having us today. It is plain from the debate that we are having that people who care passionately about the cause of freedom in Cuba can disagree, sometimes passionately, about the best way to advance it. I've um, been working on this cause for many years myself, and I believe with all my heart that the president made the right decision. I have also listened with great respect and care to those who disagree, and I certainly do not dismiss their concerns. I want to start, though, by making a few points on which I hope uh, we all do agree. First of all, all of us agree that human rights and the empowerment of the Cuban people must be the bedrock of our new policy towards Cuba, and it will be, as to how we will take our cues from the Cuban people, supporting their vision for Cuba's future. Secretary Kerry has explicitly said that we endorse the objectives that Cuban civil society groups have rallied around. Second, I trust we all agree that the most immediate result of this new policy, the release of 53 activists who are now back with their families, able to continue their brave work, is a good thing. The released men and women include virtually everybody known to my bureau for having been prosecuted uh, in Cuba for the peaceful exercise of their political views. And I can assure you that we will spare absolutely no effort to ensure that everybody in this category is free in Cuba, not just from prison, but from harassment, threats, and restrictions. Third, we all agree that the release of these prisoners does not change the fundamental nature of a state that tries to stifle everything it does not control. We have no illusions about the current leadership's desire to keep things just as they are. And we fully agree that none of this, neither Cuba's repression, nor its poverty, nor its isolation is the fault of the United States or of the embargo. The responsibility lies with the Cuban government, period. At the same time, after 50 years of experience with the embargo, we have to face the hard truth that it has not weakened the repressive apparatus of the Castro government or strengthened Cuban civil society. The dominant feature of life in Cuba these last 50 years has been the complete absence of change and of hope day after day, year after year. I say this as someone who often supports economic sanctions, and I totally agree with you, Senator Rubio, when you say that no country ever became a democracy simply because of trade or tourists. At the same time, we have all seen how the Castro government has succeeded around the world in making our embargo a bigger issue than its own repression, making it extremely hard to mobilize international pressure for human rights on the island. To its own people, the government has justified Cuba's isolation and poverty as a product of American hostility. These were terrible excuses. They justified nothing, but we have to acknowledge that this has worked for the Castros over the years. What has changed is that it is not going to work anymore. Every country knows now that the United States is not the obstacle to Cuba's integration or prosperity. Every citizen of Cuba knows that the U.S. is willing to have normal relations with their country help them connect with the world. These steps 
have raised the Cuban people's expectations and shifted the burden for meeting those expectations to the Cuban state. The state can now respond in one of two ways. It can begin the reforms needed for its people to benefit from this opening to the U.S., in which, the Cuban, in which case the Cuban people will be less dependent on their government and have more power to shape their future, or it can keep resisting their, those reforms, in which case everyone will know who is to blame. So that's the opportunity. We now have to work together to try to seize it by getting more information to the Cuban people, more resources, by urging other countries to join us in pressing the Cuban government on human rights and democracy. I was in Bolivia a couple of weeks ago for the inauguration of the new president there, but I went for the express purpose also of meeting with leaders and foreign ministers from throughout the hemisphere to urge them to do just that. We're working to ensure that civil society from Cuba can engage with governments at the summit of the Americas uh, in Panama. Um, the Cuban government has also proposed government-to-government -government talks on human rights, and I will lead our delegation uh, to that uh, effort. And we will continue our programs that promote the realization of human rights in Cuba, just as we do in scores of other countries around the world. Now look, none of us can say what will happen next. Some of Cuba's bravest dissidents, people who we profoundly respect for their sacrifices, believe little good is likely to come from these changes. Others who have sacrificed for the cause of democracy believe just as strongly that we've done the right thing. There are different views because the future is uncertain. But I'll close by suggesting that this uncertainty after decades of absolute depressing certainty that nothing can change in Cuba carries with it a sense of possibility. Our task is to seize that opportunity and to realize that possibility. And I look forward, Mr. Chairman, to working with you and other members to do that in the coming months. Thank you. Thank, thank you both for your testimony. We'll begin now the first round of questions. My hope is to get at least two rounds in. We're going to go five-minute segments on questions, and we'll go by uh, seniority on the committee, or seven minutes, I guess, seven minutes. All right, so let me begin. Secretary Jacobson, when did you first learn about these negotiations with regards to change of policy towards Cuba? Well, I knew for throughout the period that there were efforts underway to secure the release of Alan Gross. When um, did you know about the policy changes being negotiated? I knew about the policy changes that accompanied that effort uh, some weeks, uh, probably about a couple of months before they were announced. In the two months that you knew about it, were you involved in the negotiations? I was not. Was anybody in the State Department involved in the negotiations? I can't speak for the Secretary of State. I know that no one in my bureau was involved. Who, who, did do, who were the lead negotiators for the United States? To the best of my knowledge, they were the NSC personnel that you mentioned at the beginning of the hearing. Okay. And who were the lead negotiators for the Cuban government? Were they diplomats or members of the military or intelligence? I don't know that. Okay. Um, were you consulted or regularly briefed by the negotiators for your input on the policy changes? What I, what I can say is that when we were talking about securing the release of Alan Gross, the State Department was in the lead on that part of the Gross detention. We were in the lead on the conditions of confinement. We were on the lead in contacting his family and working with But what about family. the policy changes? Uh, I, I think that... Uh, well, there had, been, there had been a process of looking at potential policy changes with Cuba that had been going on throughout the administration that had brought many agencies together. Right. Much of that discussion 
was the basis for the conversation. But as the negotiations were ongoing with the two individuals that, you, that I've identified who are not here today, were you personally contacted, as the person who's now in charge of making this come about, were you involved in, in, in interaction with the negotiators, giving them input and advice during the last two months? In the last two months, as we were preparing for, on the policy changes, I was not. Okay. Uh, as we were preparing to implement the uh, effect of those changes, I was. So it's fair to say that this negotiation occurred through NSC personnel. The State Department was not in charge or involved in, unless the Secretary of State was, in providing advice and counsel on negotiating the policy changes. To the best of my knowledge, most of the preparation on the policy changes had been done through the policy committee that was an interagency policy committee prior to those negotiations. But during that process, okay. we were not. Okay. Now, uh, Secretary Malinowski, when did you learn about these negotiations on the policy changes? Um, like uh, Assistant Secretary Jacobson, I was aware that there were discussions with respect to Alan Gross, but in terms of the policy changes, did the negotiators reach out to you as someone in charge of the human rights portfolio for the State Department for a suggestion on who should be on the list of the 53 political prisoners? Um, we, we were involved in, in every conversation interagency about political prisoners in Cuba, about who. But were you consulted on who the 53 or what the list should be and who should be picked? Um, the, the list was based on um, inputs that were provided uh, over time by Cuban civil society organizations. Were, were you consulted? Not personally, but I can tell you that they asked for exactly the right people to be released. Which civil society groups in Cuba or opposition figures were consulted, to the best of your knowledge, about the list? There are a number of Cuban civil society organization senators you know who document who is in prison in Cuba for the peaceful exercise of their political views. All of those lists from a variety of human rights organizations were consulted and incorporated, and the list was exactly the right list. So the administration during these negotiations consulted with civil society in Cuba about who should be on the list? We have been consulting as an administration for years with Cuban civil society and human but rights But specifically with regards to these negotiations, were groups within Cuba consulted and asked who should be the people that are on the list, who should we prioritize, what's the status of each individual on the list? Not specifically with respect to the negotiations, which as we all Just know. Just in general. But in general, we based our knowledge of who is in prison in Cuba on their work. Secretary Jacobson, that takes me back to another question. Who, who, which civil society groups in Cuba were in the loop, so to speak, who were consulted during the process of this negotiation? I know you were not involved, but subsequently you've talked to some of them. Which groups within Cuba, which pro-democracy groups which in Cuba were aware of these negotiations and consulted about the subject matter of the negotiations during the negotiations? I, I think you probably have to ask some of those groups, uh, but to, to the best of my knowledge, we continued to consult with those groups throughout that period through our interest section and through Tom and my work in the Bureau as we always consult with them. But as part of the negotiations, I don't know that any were specifically consulted. The input that we get through our interest section and through our own work was certainly known to the negotiators. Okay, let's talk about something you are involved in negotiating now. You traveled to Havana last week, the week before. The week before. The lead negotiator for the Cubans is an individual by the name of Josevina Vidal, correct? You've known her, you've interacted with her in the past? Yes. You find her to be, as you said, a serious person, someone, yes. okay. And you, t so when she speaks, you take what she says with some level of authority and seriousness. I mean, she obviously has some level of authority from the government to be at that table and speak on their behalf. Yes. Okay. 
I wanted to ask you about yesterday, she has a statement. It says, Cuba's lead negotiator said in an interview broadcast on state television that if the United States want free movement for its diplomats in Cuba, it must stop using them to support the political opposition. This is her quote. The way those diplomats, meaning the U.S., act should change in terms of stimulating, organizing, training, supplying, and financing elements within our country that act against the interests of the government of the Cuban people. The total freedom of movement, which the U.S. side is posing, is tied to a change in the behavior of its diplomatic mission and its officials, end quote. Would we accept an embassy in Cuba where our diplomats are not allowed to meet with democracy activists on the island? We would not curtail the activities we're doing now, which is meeting with democracy but, but, but activists. And one of the so things that we're trying to negotiate is opening an embassy in Cuba. Correct. And she's saying in order for us to open an embassy in Cuba, and as you've said, she's a serious person who speaks with authority, she's made very clear yesterday that in order for us to open an embassy in Cuba and allow our personnel greater freedom than they have now, we would have to agree not to allow them to interact with democracy activists. Is that a condition? Can you categorically say today we will never accept that condition on our personnel? What I can say is that I don't yet know whether that's a real condition on their part, but we could not accept that condition. Well, what do you mean it's it not were. a real condition? You well, just said she's a serious person who speaks with authority I, on behalf I also, of the government. I also think that sometimes things are said in public that are not necessarily a position in private, and I don't know that they have made that a condition yet. But in you fact, that is their position them. in public today, is it not? I, I saw what she said in public. But what I'm but saying practice, is we could condition. not we could not accept not meeting with democracy activists and with the broadest swath of Cubans possible. That's the point of this policy. My time is so, up yes. and I want to get to Senator Boxer. I guess we, what I'm trying to get today is the following. Can you say today to people watching this broadcast and here in the audience and to the members of this committee that under no circumstances will the United States ever agree to limit to agree to limit the ability of our personnel to interact with democracy activists in civil society in Cuba as a condition of expanding our embassy operation. We want to have the greatest possible ability to interact with everybody, including democracy activists, all over the island. That's the point of our getting the geographic restrictions lifted. So we will never agree to, with the Cuban government that in order to open an embassy, we will agree to limit our personnel. We're going to keep pushing to get those restrictions lifted as part of getting an embassy Secretary in Cuba. Jacobson, it's a pretty straightforward question. Would we ever agree in a negotiation to the Cubans that in order to open an embassy, we will agree not to send our people to meet with democracy activists. Yes or no? Will we I ever agree to that? I can't imagine that we would ha go to the next stage of our diplomatic relationship with an agreement not to see democracy activists. No. Okay. Second, uh, sorry, Senator Boxer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, on this question of the White House staff not coming here, I would ask unanimous consent to place in the record a White House counsel letter in which they point out that administrations of both political parties uh, don't have White House staff uh, at, these, at these hearings. I'd like to put that in the record. Without objection. Thank you very much. Um, my friend, the ranking member, seems to say, and I don't know that he meant to say this, but that Nixon going to China and normalizing relations was really not a good thing to do. Uh, that's what I heard him say. And as I said in my opening statement, clearly, whether it's relations with China or Vietnam or Russia, all of which were normalized by uh, Democratic and Republican presidents, we know human rights abuses are still a heart-wrenching problem. 
And the Honorable uh, Mr. Malinowski, I mean, he, that's his middle names, human rights. And we know these countries are, you know, tough. And the question really is, what about the citizens of those countries? Does it help them to be isolated from Americans, whether it's through trade or talking on the street or the ability to interact? And, you know, I think having a policy in which Americans can interact with the people that you care about is not only, I think, unintelligent, but it doesn't work, and for 50 years we've seen it doesn't work, and I hope, and I, and I hope that nobody here is considering revisiting relations we have had with other countries that still have human rights abuses. These abuses are a sin against humanity, but I believe if we have contact with the people, we give them hope. We give them the possibility of being empowered. So to... So I have to say with all my heart and deep respect for my ranking member and my subcommittee chairman, whom I congratulate on the chair, even though I regret that you know we lost control, I do think um, he deserves congratulations. The fact of the matter is um, they represent the status quo. And the status quo in Cuba has not worked. And I don't think there's anyone who could argue that it has worked, although we'll probably hear a couple of people suggesting that it continue. Um, I, I think President Obama had courage, uh, just as Nixon had courage to go to China, uh, just as uh, Reagan had courage to deal with Gorbachev, just as Bill Clinton and John Kerry and John McCain had courage to, to fight for normalization with Vietnam. And I ask unanimous consent to place into the record 46 statements by foreign governments in support of this policy change, including Brazil, Mexico, the European Union, and the Vatican. May I do that, sir? Without objection. Thank you. Um, and so in light of that, can I ask our panel in either order, uh, what effect has the president's new Cuba policy had on a relationship with other countries in the region and the world? Thank you, Senator Boxer. Um, I think that the the reaction to this was immediate and extremely positive. Um, we saw certainly, as you've noted, um, widespread support throughout Latin America um, for the policy change. Um, and frankly, there was uh, shock by some of Cuba's allies in the region, uh, Venezuela and others, who were not quite sure what to make of it. And that, I think, also was a very positive thing. Um, the European Union, my counterpart in the European Union reached out to me immediately. Uh, they are negotiating with Cuba and he wanted to make sure that we were in sync because he felt immediately that we could work more closely together now, including on democracy and right, human so rights. Right, so if I can interrupt you, so our new policy is in line with our allies' policy. Yes, but, but just as importantly, when I was in Cuba two weeks ago, for the first time, when we held a large reception for democracy and human rights activists, to which we invited European and Asian and other diplomats, they all came. And where was it, this held? This was at our principal officer's residence. They never came in the past not wanting to be associated with Cuba. our policy. Yes. Well, I think that kind of answers the question. Having that the Mr. opportunity has to asked. meet dissidents. Uh, could I hear from you, Mr. Malinowski? Um, well, Certainly, and I've had the same experience. As I mentioned, uh, when Assistant Secretary Jacobson was in Cuba, I was in, in La Paz in Bolivia. 
and where there was this gathering of leaders and ministers from throughout the hemisphere for the inauguration, and I met with uh, probably a dozen of them, um, again, for the express purpose of talking about human rights in, in Cuba. And I have to say, the, the overwhelming reaction I got was, you have done a great thing for the hemisphere, how can we help? And for the first time, I think we were able to have conversations at that level about what these countries can do for human rights in Cuba by raising key cases, by urging no more harassment of dissidents, mm -hmm. by urging Cuba to meet the commitments that it has made on allowing the UN and the ICRC in, including to prisons, which I agree with you, Senator Rubio, is very, very important, um, on meeting Cuban dissidents themselves. For the first time, we can have a conversation about that without the overhang of, uh, of, of the embargo, without anyone being able to say, it is your policy that's, that's to blame. Okay, let, let me just say, because I'm running out of time. To me, one of the most important statements came from Pope Francis, who said, quote, the Holy See will continue to assure its support for initiatives which both nations will undertake to strengthen their bilateral relations and promote the well-being of their respective citizens. Now, having the Pope say that is a big deal. I'm just wondering, were you aware that he was going to make that comment, or was this just a, a reaction? Was there any discussion with the Pope just to get his views on this prior to this policy? Well, the Vatican's involvement in this policy change was crucial. Um, the support of the Vatican and Pope Francis was something that was crucial to both sides. The respect for this pope, because he's a Latin American, and his importance in Cuba and throughout the hemisphere, I think, is part of the reason it's so well-respected, not just in and of itself, as Tom said, but because of the emphasis that the pope has put behind it. Um, and I do think that, it, that our work with the Vatican and the Pope has been instrumental in this. Do you think that the Pope's strong support for this is resonating in Cuba itself? Could you Absolutely. expand I on heard that? Absolutely. I heard about it everywhere from, from uh, Cardinal Ortega and from others in the church, as well as from Cubans I met uh, while I was there, independent uh, private entrepreneurs and independent media. This has galvanized them as well. They're also encouraged by the fact that the Pope's continuing involvement and the Vatican's continuing involvement as a, a facilitator and to some extent as a guarantor gives them greater hope uh, that compliance will be right. uh, assured. I would close with this. I think that is critical. And I, I'm going to write a letter to Pope Francis, thanking him for his leadership on this, but he's got to stay involved. And I don't think there's any doubt we're going to have problems with the government there. There's just like we do, as my friend pointed out, in China, of course. This isn't going to change everything overnight. So I think his involvement in calling it the way he sees it and being sincere and honest about what's happening is going to help us move forward. I just want to thank both of you very much, and um, I would conclude. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having this hearing. The chairman and I agree on a lot of things in the Senate. Uh, we even agree on the taste in ties, apparently. <laughs> but, uh, but we do, do disagree on, on this subject. Uh, one of the first pieces of legislation I introduced 14 years ago when I entered the House of Representatives was legislation to lift the travel ban. Uh, I've, I've always felt that, uh, that we, we ought to have more Americans traveling to Cuba, not fewer. Uh, Cuban-American families in particular ought to be able to f visit family members. I was pleased to see the president uh, loosen those restrictions a couple of years ago 
and then take the further step of allowing more people to travel to Cuba. It's not an acknowledgement that things are better in terms of human rights in Cuba or uh, any more democracy. It's a recognition that, uh, as, as was said in your testimony, that, that we hope that we can improve the situation. So following on that, uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Jacobson, you mentioned in your testimony that you differentiate between normalization of relations and diplomatic relations. Can you expand on that briefly? Certainly, Senator. Um, full normalization of relations is a process that will take years uh, and has to include a range of issues, and I want to be very clear here, including the issues of claims uh, and expropriations, and that was made very clear to the Cuban government. The reestablishment of diplomatic relations is a first step in that process in the nearer term um, and enables us to have the conversations that can get us to a full normalization. Uh, and so those two things, I think, really have to be uh, understood uh, because sometimes people talk about normalization uh, and things that they may demand in normalization, which is a much longer process than this initial step. Thank you. With regard to diplomatic relations, uh, there's some confusion about what we have in Cuba right now. Can you describe uh, our, our mission in Cuba as it stands, sure. uh, what facilities we have, number of personnel? Of I think a lot of people would be surprised to know uh, what a presence that we have right. had for a while. Right, we, are, we have a U.S. interest section. We're under the protection of the Swiss and have been since 1977. Um, the building is the same one that we had as an embassy. We have about 360 people working in that interest section, of whom uh, uh, over uh, about 70, 60-something 60 are Americans. Um, money, a number of agencies are in that building. I believe we're one of the larger diplomatic presences in Havana. Um, they do extraordinary work processing refugees to come to the United States, obviously visa processing, uh, protection of Americans who travel there. Um, outreach to dissidents and civil society in general, support for the emerging uh, private sector in Cuba. So it's, a, it's a, as much of a range of activities as we can do uh, within Cuba today. So establishing a, a formal embassy is not so much a budget issue as it is uh, just change in policy and... Uh, That's correct. Uh, it, 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 would be, it would not be a budget issue in initially in changing our presence over time there might be other agencies that would be interested in a fuller relationship. It would enable us to do more, um, pursue additional things, for example, in our law enforcement and getting fugitives returned. There might be uh, a need to have additional presence, uh, but for now it would be uh, not a, a major budgetary exercise. All right. Um, I was glad to see the, the chairman raise, and we've spoken about this previously, that, that uh, you know, a fully functioning embassy will be expected to have uh, the same requirements and protocols that fully functioning embassies elsewhere in the world have in terms of a diplomatic pouch and uh, being able to travel freely. Uh, those are part of the negotiations that you're talking about right now to make sure that we have those, those items. This will be a fully functioning embassy. Right, absolutely. And there are a number of things. That ability to see uh, the entire range of Cuban civil society, including democracy <laughs> activists. Also, the fact that free access to the interest section has been controlled by, by Cuban security. Um, we request security, obviously, to protect our embassy, 
but that doesn't mean screening. Mm -hmm. And right now people are in essence screened and their names are taken. Uh, that's a feature that we would undertake in the future, what we do, as we do in other embassies. But we basically want to ensure that the embassy runs commensurate with embassies all over the world. Right. Mr. Malinowski, um, you uh, are talking about the issues that obviously still remain in the area of human rights. Um, do you believe that with uh, normalized relations or diplomatic relations or improved relations that you can more effectively press on those issues than we've been able to over the past couple of decades? Uh, absolutely, and you know, with, with the strong caveat that we have no illusions about this, this is gonna be hard. Um, authoritarian regimes don't just give up their power voluntarily, but um, change comes by empowering people to demand change. It comes by making the Cuban people less dependent on the Cuban state for their livelihood, for their survival. It comes through information coming from the outside and less control by the Cuban state. And it comes from international pressure and we will be able to generate more international pressure on the Cuban government as a result of this policy. Thank you. Ms. Jacobson, do you view the policy changes that have been made as a concession to the Cuban government? Absolutely not, Senator. I think that's a really important point. Um, there's, there's nothing in the policy that, that we undertook that wasn't something done in our national interest. Indeed, some of these things are things the Cuban government would not have asked for, and certainly uh, we do not see them as concessions. They are designed to empower the Cuban people more effectively than we've been able to in the past, and to enable us uh, to cooperate on those areas where our interests and the Cuban governments may uh, overlap. Well, thank you. I've uh, seen that for a, a long time, and people see that normalization of relations or allowing Americans to travel to Cuba as somehow a concession uh, to the Cuban regime. Many, uh, many regimes do not consider U.S. embassies a gift. Uh, we, right. We're pretty active and, uh, and pretty outspoken. Right, and I would view it the same way in terms of travel. We've had various programs. We spend, uh, I think, about $20 million a year in uh, democracy programs trying to uh, give more Cubans access to the Internet, for example. And the way I see it, uh, as Americans travel freely, uh, more freely, and hopefully, ultimately, completely freely, that we can do more in a week uh, by just allowing Americans to travel uh, than we could uh, in you know, spending tens of millions of dollars and, uh, and untold resources and, and trouble with the policy that we've had in trying to promote democracy to Cuba. So thank you for your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Madam Secretary, you know, based on your answers to uh, the chairman, uh, in which largely it seems to me that the State Department is an institution which is responsible for conducting uh, our nation's diplomacy and was kept in the dark. And you can imagine that I was particularly concerned when your deputy informed my office that the changes to U.S. policy were not used as leverage at the negotiating table, that they were not used to secure any concessions from the Castro regime, that this was not, quote, unquote, a transactional process. 
Now, I see you made no mention of fugitives in Cuba, no mention of law enforcement issues in your statement, no mentions of $6 billion in property rights, no mention of $2, million, $2 billion in judgments, no mention of indictments in federal courts in the United States of uh, Cuban officials uh, for the purposes of uh, committing murder. And uh, the same deputy informed my office that the U.S. government is conducting a review of Cuba's status as a state sponsor of terror in response to a request from the Castro regime. So despite that everything that we have heard from the regimes and its surrogates here uh, who operate relatively freely in this country uh, is that they wanted exactly what you have largely given them, you elicited nothing in return. Even your list of 53, uh, 14 of those 53 were released before the list was ever composed, and several were rearrested. The Red Cross can't get into uh, Cuban jails. So what, you know, this is my problem in understanding the nature of the decision here not to elicit anything uh, at the end of the day. So let me ask you, since you're conducting a review about at, at the Cuban government's petition uh, as it relates to their being on the state sponsor of terrorism. Isn't it true that the Castro regime provides sanctuary to Joanne Chesimard, who is on the FBI's list of most wanted terrorists for murdering a New Jersey state trooper? It is, sir. Isn't it true that the Castro regime is providing sanctuary to members of organizations that the State Department has named as foreign terrorist organizations? There, that has certainly been the case. In the Isn't past. it true that the State Department considers a foreign government providing sanctuary to a terrorist that has committed a terrorist in another country to be support for international terrorism? Certainly in the past we have used that sanctuary as that has been clearly noted in our, in our reports on Cuba in our terrorists. And just beyond that in reform. general, that is a standard that you have used, providing sanctuary to a terrorist, because here's in what the, the past, law says. Yes. Let yes, me read sir. from the Export Administration Act of 1979, which establishes part of the legal foundation for designating a country as a sponsor of terrorism. It defines the term, quote, repeatedly provided support for acts of international terrorism to include the recurring use of any part of the territory of the country as a sanctuary for terrorists or terrorist organizations, as a sanctuary. And that's exactly what we have here, among others. Now, let me ask you this. The 18-month-long secret negotiations began in June of 2013. The next month, Cuba and North Korea got caught smuggling 240 metric tons of weapons through the Panama Canal, the single largest violation of UN Security Council resolution sanctions to date, was this issue, to your knowledge, discussed during the negotiations? I, I don't know if it was Has it discussed. been discussed since? Has it been discussed with the Cuban government? Yeah. It certainly has been discussed with the Cuban government since the revelation of that repeatedly. But since, the, since you're engaged? Uh, since it's uh, been discussed with other governments and then with the UN, with the Cuban government. So could once since my engagement, has it been discussed with them? We've certainly discussed the need to comply with international law and, and with uh, so requirements once, of, so, well, of good. that. Well, I'm glad we talk about but, following international law because in the aftermath of this incident, incident the United Nations acted forcefully correct. and applied strong sanctions against well, North Korea. Let me finish, Madam okay. Secretary. Sure. Against North Korea, but Cuba got off with nothing more 
Nothing more than a slap on the wrist. So you'd wonder if having the Cubans have the biggest UN Security Council violation of sending MiGs and missiles and tons of equipment to North Korea. So North Korea gets further sanctions and Cuba gets nothing, maybe because that would have upset the secret negotiations that were taking place. Let me ask you this. You talk about connectivity. Isn't it true that Cuba uh, has had Venezuela lay a fiber optic cable to Cuba, that an Italian tele telecommunications company partnered with Etesca for several years, and yet dissidents on the island still don't have access to the internet and other forms of communication? Because even if you think the law allows the investment of U.S. dollars to provide the link to the island, there is no guarantee, as we see in China and other places, that the government of Cuba will permit such linkages to ultimately take place to the average Cuban. Do you have any guarantees of that in your negotiations? We have no guarantees, but that's why, as uh, Assistant Secretary Malinowski said, it will be clear who is keeping the Cuban people from having that connectivity when they can no longer blame any barrier on us. Well, they don't have a barrier. They already have a fiber optic uh, line uh, directly laid by Venezuela into Cuba. They had an Italian company participating with them, and yet there is no connectivity for the Cuban people because the Castro regime will not permit that connectivity to take place. If not, I'd be the first one to say, let's go ahead and do that. But at the end of the day, you got no concession from the regime that even if you allow the fiber optic or other technological connections to take place, that they will allow the Cuban people to have access to it. So this is replete with challenges that we have in terms of not getting anything on behalf of the Cuban people. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to include uh, statements in the record by the New Jersey Association of Chiefs of Police, a letter to President Obama from the New Jersey State Troopers Fraternal Association and by various sheriffs of New Jersey as it relates to Joanne Chesimar. Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Secretary Malinowski, Secretary Jacobson, for your attendance today. Um, in announcing the, the policy change, the President stated that this is fundamentally about freedom and openness. While I agree with the President's words and vision, I remain questioned. I have questions about the Castro regime, which continue to wield absolute power on the island, and I am concerned that they may not see it the same way. In the briefing material that we received for this hearing, it stated uh, short-term detentions in Cuba for political reasons have increased significantly over the past several years, a reflection of the government's change of tactics in repressing dissent. The Havana-based Cuban Commission on Human Rights and National Reconciliation reports that there were at least 2,074 such detentions in 2010, 4,123 in 2011, 6,602 in 2012, and 6,424 in 2013. For 2014, the group reported that there were 8,899 such detentions, almost 39% higher than the previous year. Since the announcement of this policy, have those detentions lessened or increased? Um, it, is, since the announcement of, from December to January, we've actually seen a significant decrease, but I don't want to say that one month represents a trend. We want to be very, very precise and realistic here. Um, and even a single one of these detentions is too many. We are going to be watching this very, very have, carefully. Is there, has there been a single detention since the announcement of this policy? There have been short-term detentions, absolutely, yes. Uh, how many? Um, the number for January, this is not come out publicly yet, but I believe it's about 140 or so. So since the announcement of this opening, 
this overture, mm -hmm. there have been over 140, roughly 140 new detentions. The nature of the Cuban regime Political has detention. not changed, absolutely. It, I'm sorry, was that the nature? The nature of the Cuban regime has not changed, and we have not claimed so. Do you believe that it will change? I am absolutely confident that the Cuban people who have been fighting for change in Cuba are going to prevail, and I think they will be more empowered to prevail as a result of this new policy. And do you believe the Castro regime will become your partner in that empowerment? I have no indication that they have any desire to become our partner in that. That's not the way this works in any authoritarian state. Going back to the issue of the political dissidents, uh, Secretary Jacobson, you mentioned that there were divisions within the civil rights community, those people who support the changes being made and those people who do not. The people who do not support these changes that we have been talking about today. Why do they not support those changes? Senator, I hesitate to speak for them, but I certainly listened to them when I was there, and it was very important for me to hear from all sides while I was there. Um, many believe that um, it was not the right thing to do because they fear that the Cuban government will not respond to our willingness to have a dialogue. Um, as Assistant Secretary Malinowski said, the policy does not, is not based on the Cuban government changing or necessarily being our partner here. We would like that to happen. We have no illusions about whether or not it will. It's based on trying to empower them. Um, they also may have felt that we didn't get enough in the deal it wasn't really a deal. It was what was in our national interests. It was a policy in which we don't believe we conceded anything to the government, but, but there are differing views. I would let them speak for themselves, some in the next panel and, and elsewhere, to the best of their ability. But, but I heard from them differences in tactics and the way we go about this, but not differences in goals or what we're all hoping to achieve, and I certainly respected their views enormously and learned a great deal from some of them about things we might be able to do together going forward. Following up on Senator Rubio's, Chairman Rubio's questions on the State Department uh, and the State Department's role in the negotiations, uh, you stated the policy committee is where these policy changes came from, is that correct? Certainly, within an interagency policy committee, many of these changes were discussed broadly before the negotiations began. And who from the State Department is on, on that policy committee? Well, e either myself or my deputy who works on uh, Cuban affairs or the experts in our Cuba affairs office when we're talking about regulatory changes. And so are they a part of the conversations you or the two that you mentioned a part of these changes? That we're certainly part of the interagency policy committee when those kinds of regulate yes, when that whole regulatory change conversation was taking place, yes. Um, some critics, to Secretary Jacobson, some critics of the policy uh, have stated that the administration, quote, threw an economic lifeline to the Castro regime, especially as its two top international backers, Russia and Venezuela, are struggling financially. Do you agree with this assessment? I know that there is concern over the Cuban government uh, gaining resources uh, in, in the future because of this. What I can say is that the Cuban government has been through extremely difficult economic times before, one of which they lost 30% of their GDP. Um, they've survived those. In addition, we strongly believe that the benefits of what the Cuban people will gain in resources through this policy outweigh any benefit to the Cuban government that may be gained in a policy like this. And those will be greater, we think, 
than what the Cuban government gains. Including possible changes. How, how has this affected uh, traditional alliances of Cuba? I'm sorry, their, uh, how, their alliances uh, with other countries? Right, correct. Well, I think that I don't know exactly how it will affect their alliances, whether it is with Russia or with Venezuela, but certainly what our hope is that we can empower the small entrepreneurs, the conversation with the emerging uh, entrepreneurial class separating from the state, gaining access to information. I think that is very powerful. And obviously, the more people who are not reliant on the state for their economic future make their own economic decisions, I think politically and economically, the more it empowers people to think twice about those old alliances. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much, Chairman Rubio and Senator Boxer, and, and thank you for calling us together in this uh, uh, very important hearing, and really appreciate having the, the witnesses here. Um, for over 50 years, the United States has followed a failed policy in Cuba, a policy that has done nothing to lift up the lives of ordinary Cubans. And I think that's been one of the, the uh, points that has been made over and over again, is that our uh, thrust with an embargo uh, has hurt the Cuban people, while it has probably uh, done more to enrich uh, the Cuban government. Uh, I believe President Obama, with his actions in December, has taken the courageous step towards true change here by opening up the island to Americans, increasing opportunities for business and agriculture, and taking the steps needed to improve telecommunications and access to Internet on the island. We will finally be able to engage Cuba in a way we have not been able to since the embargo. We, of course, need to go further, and I have been pleased to work with Senator Flake uh, on his legislation and, and Senator Leahy and others uh, to end the travel ban for Americans. Uh, in in uh, my mind, the best uh, ambassadors we have or the best diplomats we have are the American people going and directly interacting with Cubans, and that's uh, what we would do by ending uh, this travel ban. I strongly believe that these new policies will help. A growing number of Cuban entrepreneurs can connect with Americans and Cuban Americans and support the free market. Uh, I met with these uh, new business owners last November when I traveled uh, with Senator Flake down to Cuba. There is an entre entrepreneurial spirit there uh, which we can help foster through partnerships and interaction uh, with U.S. businesses. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I would ask consent to put the rest of my statement in the record. Uh, Without objection. And, and uh, I would ask specifically with regard to these interactions and entrepreneurship down there, what, what are the, the things that uh, both of you contemplate in terms of interactions between uh, Americans and Cubans in terms of furthering business interests? Well, Senator, I think you know that in, in the regulations that have been announced, uh, that were implemented in January uh, and were announced by the President in December, the regulations state that support for private entrepreneurs, this emerging class in, in the 200 or so areas that the Cuban government permits private businesses, small businesses to exist, are now permitted whether it's building materials or other forms of support. Um, 
I met with a group of about seven private entrepreneurs when I was there, from restaurateurs to barbers to a woman making soap. Um, and, and their sense of optimism and, and freedom uh, and independence was, was really quite inspiring. Their difficulty at getting supplies, reliable supplies, was also clearly a biggest, the biggest part of their challenge. And so the hope is that people can now, whether it's small businesses here or corporations or individuals, can they can now connect with some of those small businesses and try and support their work, whether it's equipment or goods, um, to help them get more reliable supplies. There may be foundations and other organizations that can do that as well. But it's clear that more people may be able to take advantage of the rather Byzantine rules that exist for these entrepreneurs with the new regulations. And I would also hope, and we've talked about this with some of, of the partners in the hemisphere, that this is an area where others throughout the hemisphere can support this emerging class, and they are keen to do so. Let, let me just add. Please, go ahead. I, I, this is important because <clears throat> this gets us back to, I think, the central question on the table today. And that is that what Assistant Secretary Jacobson just described is not anything that the Cuban government wanted or asked for. And this gets us back to the issue of leverage. These are steps, the steps we have announced, that are designed to get more resources and information to the Cuban people. And Imagine what would have happened if we had gone to the Castro government and said, open up your political system or else we will not help connect Cuba to the internet or else we will not help these small business people. How much do you think we could have gotten for that? Even on the question of diplomatic relations, as Senator Rubio pointed out, they are now, at least rhetorically, trying to put conditions on that. This is not something that they themselves are very comfortable with. They are nervous about it because it does create these possibilities, not guarantees, because Senator Menendez is also absolutely right. It now depends on them, on their willingness to unleash this stuff, and they may not be willing to do that. But it does put the burden on them, and that makes them nervous, and that is the point of the strategy. And, and the, the important point here is, is we are trying to empower the Cuban people and, right. and we do that in the business area. We do that in a number of areas with these new policies. And I, I think that uh, that is the thrust of this policy. And it's a very important thrust in terms of moving us forward. If I could, Senator, the other thing I think is critical is, you know, when, when, I, when we held our press conferences after the t first round of talks, the Cuban government held press conference, and, and I did as well, at the talks themselves. But Cuban independent media were not able to come to that press conference, which is why the next day I held a larger one in our principal officer's residence, because all of the Cuban independent media that we knew of was invited. Um, we made sure they were there. But the Cuban government actually broadcast my press availability in Spanish live uh, for the first time. And so I felt it was important to talk about things like human rights, to talk about things like private businesses, because they were airing it live. Cuban people were able to hear from an American official for the first time live. And then to have Cuban independent media 
be at, at the principal officer's residence to empower them directly that way as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Rubio. Thank you, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the, uh, our panelists on both panels and all the members of the committee. Um, just a moment of personal privilege. This is a, a subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, and there was an interesting announcement earlier today from the Vatican uh, that I just wanted to comment on. Um, the Vatican has declared uh, Archbishop Oscar Romero's death a martyrdom, a spiritual martyrdom, which is uh, the first step toward potential beatification. Uh, he was killed by death squads in El Salvador in 1980. I think he was one of the towering figures in human rights in the 20th century. I was living in Honduras and in El Salvador during this period and, and came to see the enormous influence that he had for good, standing against violence, uh, standing for advocacy for the least of these. And uh, we're here in a Western Hemisphere subcommittee meeting, and I think it's an important thing to acknowledge that this just happened a couple of hours ago. This is a very important hearing and a very important debate. And I have dear friends who are kind of on both sides of it, and it's caused me to grapple both with the U.S. Cuba relationship, but also with the whole concept of what do diplomatic relationships mean? What do they stand for? Why do we have them? Um, you know, I, I've, I conclude as I grapple with that question that diplomatic relationships, they're not a good housekeeping seal of approval. They're not a, a validation as a star student or a, a gold star for, for good behavior. That's not what they are, because we clearly have diplomatic relationships with so many nations that we disagree with so strongly about human rights or other issues. They, they are merely a, a normalized opportunity to create a channel so that we can raise issues of importance. Um, recently, seven of us took a trip to, um, under the leadership of Senator McCain, Chairman of Armed Services Committee, to Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and Israel. Saudi Arabia, uh, we had an opportunity to raise a very important human rights issue. Uh, Saudi Arabia had sentenced a political blogger to a thousand lashes, administered 50 at a time, one day a week for 20 weeks, followed by 10 years in prison for something that in this country, you know, we might, it might annoy us what the blogger had to say, but would not be punishable in any means, especially in, in any way so barbaric. When we arrived in Saudi Arabia, they knew we were going to raise this issue. They had done the first day of the flogging, but they postponed the second day of the flogging, the day that we arrived. And when we sat down with the officials, we raised it. And we told them that this is a, an alliance. We, we are allies in many ways, but this is so counter to our culture. This is so counter to standards of human rights that we just urge you, encourage you to rethink this because it makes the relationship so much more difficult if you do things like this. The announcement came on Friday. They, they were postponing the second proposed day of the flogging. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to not still do it. Just because we raise issues doesn't mean that anybody will do it because we ask, but we have a channel at the highest level when we have normalized diplomatic relationships to put on the table the things that really bother us and to encourage nations to be better. And, and whether or not we do, having that channel and that ability to push it is, is something that I think is very, very important. Um, these human rights issues in Cuba are very, very severe. There's, there's human rights issues. I read Oscar Romero's statements about the level of repression in El Salvador that he was dealing with, and he could be say, speaking about El Salvador in 1982. He could be speaking about Cuba in 2015. He could be speaking about a lot of places in the world. These are very serious issues, but, but I tend to come down on the side that a more normal relationship will give us more angles and levers to play to promote uh, better, better behavior. 
This was alluded to only briefly. Let me ask you this question. Senator Boxer put into the record a statement of nations that had expressed support. What about the regional reaction? I, I have worried over time that the U.S. position vis-a-vis -vis Cuba has put sort of a ceiling on our relationships in the region in ways that could be a challenge. And whether it's in international institutions like the Organization for American States or even in bilateral diplomacy, I think there's so much upside for more American engagement in the Americas. And we always give the Americas short shrift. We always are paying attention to the Middle East, or now we're going to pivot to Asia, you know? It was about Europe and then about the Middle East, now we're going to pivot to Asia. It seems like we're always, always making the Americas be the caboose on this train. But I have felt to some degree that our Cuba policy has put a little bit of a ceiling on our relationships in the region. Maybe I'm wrong about that. What has been the reaction of region, uh, regional allies in, in the Americas about this announcement? I think, Senator, that this, the, the policy towards Cuba had, in fact, always been, um, some have called it an irritant in the Western Hemisphere in our relationships with, with countries in the Western Hemisphere. Some have, have called it a weight. I think it has been a problem. Um, we will always stand for our principles, talk about and promote and, and seek to advance human rights. We're not going to give up on that for a moment. And we're going to do that as effectively as we can. But the hostility towards the way in which we've done it the past five decades vis-a-vis -vis Cuba was a real problem with the countries of this hemisphere. And they, they, they sought to distance themselves from us in ways that impeded us getting other things done with them, uh, getting other things done on Cuba, but also getting other things done on human rights elsewhere in the hemisphere, whether it was press freedom uh, throughout the hemisphere uh, or, or other human rights issues. So this is, as Tom said, the, the biggest reaction we got is this has changed, President Santos of Colombia said, this has changed the history of U.S.-Latin American relations, that, that it will be really a, a, a change throughout the hemisphere, President Rousseff in Brazil as well. We see it give lift to our policy objectives throughout the hemisphere. Secretary Molinowski, any additional thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, you know, let's be clear. There have been too many excuses made for Cuba and the hemisphere over too many years. Absolutely. And I don't like it. But, um, and I don't think they were good excuses to the extent that they used the embargo in our policy as an excuse for being silent about human rights abuses in Cuba. That was not justified. But we have to be you know, ruthlessly disciplined in analyzing what has been happening and why. The fact is, it has been an excuse that has worked for, for Cuba, and we have now taken that away. And I think both Assistant Secretary Jacobson and I have already noted in our interactions with Latin leaders and foreign ministers over the last few weeks, we talked about that a little bit brief, uh, uh, previously, that there is a completely new reaction from those folks when we ask them to help us on human rights in Cuba. So we are now going to take full advantage of that with your help. Mr. Chairman, if I could just cl close, I, I'm, let me just read a quick quote to challenge us all, all Americans, all Cubans, all over the world from uh, Archbishop Romero. Peace is not the product of terror or fear. Peace is not the silence of cemeteries. Peace is not the silent result of violent repression. Peace is the generous, tranquil contribution of all to the good of all. Peace is dynamism. Peace is generosity. It is a right and it is a duty. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
Thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, I think we all understand that Cuba is not going to change overnight. We're at the beginning of a process uh, to change the dynamic between the two countries, but also to change the dynamic between the United States and Latin America in general. And Cuba has historically been a centerpiece, uh, a reference point uh, that has been used by Latin America in our discussions on many issues. There is no question about that. Uh, back in the 1980s, as the chairman of telecommunications um, in the House of Representatives, I worked extensively on the issue of Radio Marti and TV Marti. That is a recognition of the role the communications plays uh, in opening the eye uh, the minds of Cubans uh, to a world that was outside of their boundaries. And it was a central part of uh, foreign and diplomatic uh, policy in uh, the United States. Uh, what heartens me in, in the new announcement is this initiative that can deal with uh, greater access to telecommunications uh, for the people of Cuba. Right now, there is only one fiber optic cable coming into Cuba. Uh, in the Dominican Republic, uh, a country with almost the same population, they have five fiber optic cables uh, coming in. Uh, so this whole issue of an increase in consumer communications devices, software, applications, hardware, uh, updating communications and internet services uh, is something that could play a big role in giving information to the ordinary Cuban citizen that right now is not available to them. For example, it's $5 uh, an hour in internet cafes in Havana right now for the use of the internet. And when the average income in uh, Cuba is only $20 a month, uh, that doesn't lend itself to the use by ordinary Cubans. So, could you talk a little bit about that uh, and what your hopes are for expanded telecommunications policy uh, in Cuba in terms of the impact that it can have upon that country's people? Certainly, Senator. And I think that this is and really can be. And, and, and I don't know whether it will have the impact we all want. I know that Senators Rubio, the chairman, and, and uh, Senator Menendez and I have talked a lot about trying to get more information into Cuba. It's been one of the things we've wanted most. Um, you know, it, it allows telecommunications companies for the first time to make commercial sales of things like uh, communications devices, whether that's cell phones or, you know, iPads or other forms of equipment, not just to donate them, but to make those sales. Uh, they can also sell, and, and I would, I don't want to get myself too far into this because I'll get into Commerce or Treasury's regulations and get them wrong, but, but they also are able to sell, uh, you know, other internet-related items uh, to improve the free flow of information without a license. Um, without a specific license, a general, under general license, um, uh, without a license from the Commerce Department. They're also allowed to consolidate gift parcels. Uh, they're allowed to sell, um, you know, all sorts of things that the private sector can sell in terms of equipment in hardware that were not allowed before, telecommunications hardware. Now, the Cuban government, including Raul Castro, have said they want 
telecommunications equipment. They want to upgrade their infrastructure in telecommunications. They know that they need that in order for their economic modernization. Um, I don't know whether they really mean that. Uh, that's the point of these regulations is that we believe that we, they need that to offer more access to their people. We want to push them on that. They need it for their economic modernization. They need it for, uh, you know, to, to get economic uh, progress. With that, we believe will come an opening of information to more people, even if they are not intending that. Um, and if they resist that, uh, we want to be in the forefront of having made that offer aggressively. Now, telecommunications firms are just looking at this, um, and we've been in touch with quite a few. There are some that are already visited, and many more that are now interested um, as this plays out. So we're optimistic about the interest but not necessarily mm -hmm. yet about how the Cuban government will respond. And I appreciate that, but, um, but I think because we're so close to them, because there are economic synergies that could be created from a telecommunications perspective between our two countries, uh, understanding that it is a threat to an authoritarian regime, you still have this other component where there's a natural yearning, especially amongst young people, no matter where they are in the world, to have greater access to this uh, modern technology. Um, you know, uh, Americans did not have these devices in their pockets going into 1995. But in Africa in 2001, only 12 million people had cell phones. Today in Africa, one billion people have cell phones. And so you can see how a, a, a huge paradigm shift can occur in a very brief period of time with access to these technologies and with the change in the access to technologies changes the relationship between right. the people and the and, government, and the notwithstanding state. their right. attempts to uh, completely control exactly. the, uh, the people in the way they And we've seen that in cell phone, even though internet penetration is very low, cell phone use has grown enormously and potentially could grow even more as an information tool. So I think that, um, Trying to engage on, on that one issue um, gives us an opportunity to um, to really make a difference. And I would I, actually I would add energy as well. There's a uh, there is I understand a huge effort to move to wind and solar in uh, in uh, uh, in Cuba uh, at a very significant level, which would further reduce uh, their need for imports of oil from other countries that then kind of tie them into agendas in other countries as well. Uh, and I know I'm running out of time, but I do think that ultimately um, the more that we're, we engage them at the economic level is it tends to then change the country in ways that were unanticipatable by the political leaders of that country. I thank you so much. Thank you. So we uh, still have a second panel that I desperately want to get to. It's important that we hear from them. I I'm going to recognize for a second round of questions. I would ask that they be limited to four minutes. Uh, and I know not all the members have a question, but I wanted to begin basically with the following, You've, and I'll focus on this. You talk about travel as a key component of this plan because you believe the benefits of travel to the island, uh, to the Cuban people, outweigh the benefits to the government. So in Cuba, the largest owner of tourist facilities is a group, by the, it's called Grupo de Turismo Gaviota. Recently, Hotel Magazine called it the largest hotel conglomerate in Latin America. In Cuba, they own well over 52 hotels and 
the largest resorts on the island, 19,000 rooms. Their revenues are estimated at over $650 million a year. They plan 47,000 rooms by the year 2017. They also own marinas, car rentals, restaurants, you name it. They are the single largest player, not just in Cuba, but in Latin America. The CEO of that company is an individual by the name of General Luis Perez Rospide. He's also a general in the armed forces. Mr. Malinowski, let me ask you, is the armed forces of Cuba a tool of repression? Um, yes. Okay. So this, the CEO of this company that owns all these hotels on the island is also a general of this repressive government. But this company, Gaviota, is actually owned by a larger company, a holding company by the name of Gaesa, G-A-E-S-A. Gaesa is a, it's a it, it owns various companies, including this one, but basically it has a monopoly on the island of Cuba on telecommunications, hotels, restaurants, shops, and gas stations. The CEO of the holding company that owns all of these hotels is an individual by the name of Luis Alberto Rodriguez Lopez Calleja. That's not just an individual with a long name. He is also a general in the repressive armed forces. Do you know who he's married to, Ms. Jacobson, Secretary? He's married to a, a, a lady by the name of Deborah Castro Espin. Do you venture to guess who that is? I can venture a guess that it's a member of the Castro family. It is. It is actually Raul Castro's daughter. Mm -hmm. So the CEO of the monopoly holding company in Cuba that owns all of these hotel rooms, the single largest conglomerate in Latin America of tourism, is not just a general in the repressive military, he is also the son-in-law of the dictator of Cuba. So isn't it fair to say that if tomorrow an American gets on an airplane and travels to Cuba and stays at a hotel and rents a car and fills up the tank of their rental car at a gas station and eats at a restaurant and shops at its stores, in essence, every penny they're spending in those facilities are more likely than not to wind up in the hands of the repressive Cuban military and its officials. Is that not a fair statement, given the facts I've just given you here? Let, let, me, let me try to address that, Senator Rubio. As somebody who, I was born in a communist country and I've been studying these systems all my life. And what you just described is a common feature of every repressive, corrupt, communist or otherwise totalitarian system in the world. When, we act, when you actually look at the numbers, you find that these hotels that they run, these businesses that they run, they earn hard currency, but they also seep hard currency because they run them inefficiently and that's why they fail. So we actually don't know, none of us know, exactly what the net is. But whatever the net is. But, but whatever the net is, in all of my experience advocating human rights and as someone who often supports targeted sanctions against the bad guys, I know of no example where we have successfully promoted democratic change somewhere by going after travel and tourism, by going after little people who travel and interact with each other. When we do go after people with those kinds of measures, we go up after people at the top. Give me an example of a policy like this that you're implementing here today that has led in the 20th or 21st century into a reluctant tyranny becoming a democracy. I can't think of any policy that we have successfully pursued in which we have gone after remittances and travel. There are plenty of situations where we've used diplomatic engagement. Sometimes we use diplomatic engagement plus sanctions, as we did in Burma. But we didn't do it this way. We did it in a smarter way. This is a policy that's, that's modeled me, is on- Is there an example of a country in the modern era that has gone from a tyranny to a dictatorship because of these sorts of economic openings that then have led the government to make political changes? In, in many ways, when I look at Cuba today, it reminds me of my home country, Poland, in the 1980s, where you have a glowing, growing black market, 
fed by growing interaction with the outside world, with a movement at home that was backed by strong moral pressure from the United States and the international community, and a state that was increasingly corrupt and shrinking and shrinking all of the time because it couldn't manage any of this. So yes, I think the answer is yes. So Poland is the example. We'll examine that further at a later date. Senator Boxer. Thank you. Um, I'd ask unanimous consent to place in the record the full statement of Alan Gross, the open letter to President Obama from 78 foreign policy thinkers and leaders, the statement, and I apologize if I don't pronounce this right, Dagoberto Valdez Hernandez, director, Con, could you help me with this? This magazine. Convivencia magazine. As I was saying, Convivencia magazine. I would ask that those be placed in the record, along with an op-ed in the Miami Herald, December 17th, the day of triumph for Cuban-Americans by Rick Herrero, executive director of Cuba Now, a letter from Bishop Oscar Cantu, chair of the Committee on International Justice and Peace, Conference of Catholic Bishops, ask that they go into the record. Is that right? Objection. I thank you. And I would close with this rather than I know I want to get to the panel so much. So I'll just close with a partial quote from Alan Gross. Uh, and we have to remember uh, that he was held uh, for five long years in prison in Cuba. And we're all so glad, no matter what our views are on Cuba, that he's out. And he submitted a written statement for today's hearing. And I'm going to read this little part of it now and put the rest of the statement in the record. He says, quote, in my opinion, remember, this is someone who was in prison there for five years. In my opinion, access to information is itself a fundamental human right and is essential to empowering the Cuban people. Access to information enables people to make better informed decisions and to give informed consent. Insufficient access to information is unhealthy for any citizenry and it materially impacts human rights issues on all levels. Reestablishing diplomatic relations with the government of Cuba is only a first step in reestablishing freedom of information for those who live on that island. However, it is an essential step. Why would anyone not want to take that step? And, um, and Mr. Chairman, I so respect all the views. I really do. But I just think this sums it up from someone who suffered at the hands of this corrupt dictatorship, and I stand with him on his views. Thank you. Senator Flake. Hey, uh, Assistant Secretary Jacobson, do we uh, prohibit travel to any other country in the world, um, restrict it in this way? I know we discourage travel sometimes, sometimes for security reasons or others, but uh, do we restrict travel to any other country in yeah, the world? I, I'm going to turn to my colleague to make sure, but I think the answer is no. 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 I mean, there are plenty of dictatorships that restrict our travel. I mean, right. North Korea is a good example, but no, generally, right. you know. And there's the, no the guarantee that it, The oh, sanctions wait. on Cuba are, are harsher than on many other countries in the world right. over the years. And there's no guarantee that if we um, completely got rid of the travel ban, and I know the president went about as far as he could statutorily go, correct? Um, in terms of loosening travel, but Congress needs to move to take... Correct. He, he went as far as he felt he could within executive authority, yes. But there's no guarantee that uh, if we throw open the travel for Americans, allowing them, there's no guarantee that the Cuban government will allow all travel. They still I, can control. Oh, I, I think that's exactly right. I think 
being overwhelmed is a big part of their concern. And they, they obviously want the revenue that's associated with travel. Uh, they they want the revenue the associated with many of these new measures and are very concerned at how they balance that with control. Right. I've always said if, uh, if somebody's going to restrict my travel, it should be a communist. You know, not, <laughs> not, not, yes, sir. Not, not my own government, um, um. unless there's a compelling national security reason otherwise. Um, it, it, uh, it, is, it would be untrue, and it would certainly be a stretch for me to say that every travel dollar goes into the hand of uh, uh, ordinary Cuban citizen, a bellhop or so a taxi cab driver or somebody else when they're American travel. Uh, certainly some of that money does end up in the hands of the Cuban government. Is that, is that true? Yes. But it would also uh, not be accurate to say that every dollar uh, goes to the Cuban government, uh, that there isn't some kind of seepage. I mean, when you look at writers and yourself lived in these kind of systems, or you take uh, the writings of uh, Hernando de Soto, The Mystery of Capital, and find out how black markets work and how you know the unofficial economy works, uh, there is a tremendous seepage that occurs. Is that not right? Uh, absolutely. This, this kind of interaction um, encourages the development of a black market uh, in, 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 in which people most important, in addition to enriching themselves, become more independent and less dependent on the state. And that, that is well, and I think how change happens. Fernando de Soto's point was of entrepreneurship, right. that, that, that individuals become entrepreneurs if the system won't let them do that. Precisely. And that, that's another point of this policy and some of the uh, changes in unlimited remittances. Right. How much of a change has there been on the island just in the last couple of years uh, as a result of uh, ordinary citizens having access to some of that capital? Right. I mean, that, that's been a huge difference, certainly, in the ability of people to start their own businesses. That is the, the single reason that people have been able to start their own businesses. It is capital from abroad in remittances and in the growth of cell phones uh, and the ability of people to get information via SMS and other, other, uh, other information. And, and we think that's a crucial part of this, which is why we wanted to accelerate right. those We've areas. We've seen, as you mentioned, a growth in cell phones particularly Certainly. the average uh, wage for a Cuban worker is about $20 a month. That's not enough right. to have a cell phone. Correct, uh, which so is it, why both cell phones and phone cards to, to charge them to, to get minutes are, are critical. Right. Thank you so much. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, uh, Secretary Malinowski, will you commit to this committee that uh, human rights and democracy programs in Cuba will not be cut? Um, we certainly won't cut them, and I trust you won't, so right. yes. Uh, secondly, uh, I have here the last human rights report for China. It's 154 pages long. It talks about, among so many other things, enforced disappearance, strict house arrests, preventing public expression, uh, repression of freedoms against ethnic Uyghurs and Tibetans, um, extrajudicial killings, including executions without due process, enforced disappearance and incommunicado uh, detention, widespread corruption, intense scrutiny and restrictions against NGOs, discrimination against women, minorities, persons with disabilities, a coercive birth limitation policy, and the list goes on and on. So I'd like to enter into the record 154 pages uh, of the State Department's uh, human rights report in China. And certainly you would not hold that. 
uh, as a standard after 43 years of democracy and human rights, would you? If Cuba resembles what you just described in 20 years, we will have failed. Okay. But at the same time, if I may add, Senator, I would not, if I had a choice right now to say that we should not have diplomatic relations with China or there should be no internet in China or no private businesses in China, I would certainly not take that choice. So the question is, my point, the balance my of possibilities balance is on of, our side. If 43 years from now, this reality in China is the reality in Cuba. We will have failed. We will have failed. Yes. And I agree with you on that. Now, I don't want to join the Blame America crowd, so can you tell me, uh, isn't it fair to say that the difficulties that the Cuban people face is as a result of a command and control economy and political repression inside of Cuba? Absolutely. Yes. As it's we not because said, of the yes. United States. I explicitly said in my opening statement it is not All right, result because, of the Because, uh, you know, this suggesting that the embargo has created this problem. Cuba can buy from any place in the world. It has been able to do so. It just doesn't have the resources to do so effectively. Totally Let agree. me ask you about this economic freedom that we hear all the time of. Isn't it true, as uh, the chairman uh, referred to, just a couple of items, that in Cuba, most of the businesses are monopolies. It's either a monopoly, a monopoly of the Cuban government and or its military, or a co-owner in most cases. You just don't get to have an independent free business, unless it's a small one, uh, of any consequence. Isn't that a fair statement? It's correct, and now, we are trying to break that monopoly. And Oh, yeah, but you can't break a monopoly unless the regime allows a monopoly. Even in the former Soviet Union, it was Glasnost and Postroika, which were internal openings that allowed things to break forward. Now, you get a dollar from a remittance, and it's true that you get that dollar after the government takes a percent of it for its transmission. Isn't it also true that if you really want to buy anything of value, you have to go to a dollar store inside of Cuba? It's, it's certainly true that the dollar stores are where the goods are. It's right. why... And who owns the dollar stores? The, the government. The government Absolutely. does. So the ultimate yes. flow of that money ends up in the Cuban but, government's hands at that dollar store. Well, now, isn't it true that tourism is the second largest driver of Cuba's economy? Maybe, yes. It, it, I, I can assure you it is. And so, therefore, when we think about sanctioning any entity in the world, we sanction that which ultimately drives the greatest resources to a country to move them in a different direction. And finally, this uh, element of uh, the whole regional reality, isn't it true, Mr. Secretary, uh, that in fact many countries in the region violate their own human rights and democratic principles and like to use that as a cover, using the Cuba situation, as a cover for their own short failings. So I would expect then that the democratic charter of the OAS, which talks about the commitment of all the countries in the Western Hemisphere to human rights and democracy, is now going to flourish as a result of us changing this policy. Is that a fair statement? I think we have a much better chance of advancing our human rights objectives in the hemisphere. We will continue to stand up for them in Cuba. We will stand up for them in Venezuela. You saw yesterday we announced our latest visa ban list uh, for Venezuela. We, we have the wind at our backs today like we did not several months ago, in part because of these changes. And I look forward to those results. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We do have a vote at noon, but we'll all continue to sit here so with the, our second panel's t testimony can be entered into the record. And of course, I'll come back after the vote and, and take their, uh, take and preside over the questions that we're going to ask them. Senator Udall. Thank you uh, very much. Do Obviously, the Pope felt very strongly about this. I believe he had a discussion with President Obama when he was at the Vatican. Um, when uh, Senator Flake and I went down, we, we talked with Cardinal Ortega, 
Um, could you tell us a little more about what, what I mean, he felt this was a, a moral issue and wanted to speak out uh, more about um, what activities he took or, or uh, Cardinal Ortega took in terms of, of uh, weighing in on this issue? I can't tell you too much of the details. I can tell you that the, because I don't know all of the details of the, the Pope's uh, involvement, what I can tell you is that um, Cardinal Ortega was, was important in conveying messages from, from the Vatican and from, from the Pope uh, to both of the leaders. Um, and, and at crucial moments when it wasn't clear that that this was going to be able to work. I think the Vatican's involvement and the trust that both sides place in the Vatican and in this pope was crucial. But I also think that the role that the church has played, whether it is stimulating private sector training or education or at the time working on human rights issues, whether it was Pope John Paul's visit, which was so electrifying, uh, or subsequently uh, the release of 75 political prisoners uh, in 2010, ha has been a very important fact. And it is also important that in the future, the church remain engaged, and it's part of our own civil society engagement with the church moving forward. Um, the importance of the Pope in the rest of the hemisphere can also not be discounted. The importance of Pope Francis as a figure in Latin America just cannot be overstated. Uh, coming from the region, um, his moral support and encouragement for this deal is critically important. Uh, but I also think that we now all feel uh, an even greater sense of obligation to see it through. Certainly we expect that the, the Cuban government will move forward on uh, uh, the basis of, of respect for the Pope and, and his uh, imprimatur on this. Um, and, and that's why we'd also like to see the human rights groups within Cuba, many of them affiliated with the church. Dagoberto Valdez, who was just referred to, has been very uh, involved in, in uh, the church movement. Moving forward, this is a very important part of civil society and its growth. Did Secretary Malinowski, did you have a, anything to say there? Um, nothing to add to that, no. Okay, thank you. The, isn't it true that in talking about businesses and small entrepreneurs that there's been dramatic growth in the last six or seven years in terms of the small entrepreneurs on the island of Cuba? There, there has been dramatic growth, but it's from a very small base and it's still relatively small. But there are over 200 professions now authorized for small business. And Senator Menendez, you're right, the government still has a monopoly in many, many areas. Small businesses still feel as if they are sort of get the leftovers, right? What is left of production or supply? But that's what we're trying to expand, right? If we can help provide inputs for those small businesses, they won't always be relying on the state for the leftovers because they're authorized to operate. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Senator Kane, do you have a question or can we move? All right, well, thank, thank you both for being here today. We're very grateful. We're gonna get our second panel to, to come forward. Thank you very much for your testimony.
Thank you. Uh, before we welcome the second panel of courageous human rights activists and members of the Democratic opposition in Cuba, I'd like, to unanimous I'd like unanimous consent that a statement by Mr. Antonio Rodiles be included on the record. The subcommittee has received a statement from Mr. Rodiles, but he could not attend the hearing because the Cuban regime denied him his travel documents. Without objection, show that entered into the record. He's a political activist who's achieved international visibility for his work as a, and a, created a forum in July of 2010 to encourage debate on social, cultural, and political issues in Cuba. Now, our second panel, as they come forward, I'll introduce them briefly. Rosa Maria Payas studied physics in Cuba. She was forced into exile in 2013 due to threats following the death of her husband, Oswaldo Payas Ardiñas, and her, and, his, and her friend, Harold Cepero, and what appears to have been a state security engineered extrajudicial killing. She's a member of the Christian Liberation Movement and is dedicated to the struggle for a democratic Cuba. Berta Soler is a hospital technician from Havana. Her husband, Angel Moya Acosta, is a member of the Democratic opposition in Cuba and became one of the 75 peaceful activists arrested during the March 2013 crackdown known as the Black Spring. Berta is founding member and the current president of the Ladies in White, Las de Blanco. This movement of wives and relatives of the Cuban political prisoners demands the immediate release of their loved ones and advocates for human rights in Cuba. In 2005, the European Parliament awarded the Ladies in White its Sakharov Prize for Freedom of Thought. Miriam Leva is a human rights activist and an independent journalist. She's a founding member of the Ladies in White, although she left the organization in 20, 2008 and st since then has concentrated on writing as an independent journalist and the defense of human rights in Cuba. And we mourn the death of your husband in 20, 2003, the late Oscar Espinosa Chepe. And lastly, I'd like to welcome Mr. Manuel Cuesta Morua, an anthropologist, philosopher, and historian. He is the Secretary General of the Socialist Democratic Current, a dissident movement in Cuba, and he chairs the Progressive Circle Party. We welcome your insights, and uh, I'll begin with uh, Ms. Leva. Welcome. Mr. Chairman, distinguished senators. The microphone, thank you. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Chairman, distinguished senators, dear Rosa Maria Payá, whose aspiring father was my friend, dear members of the peaceful Cuban opposition and dissidents within the island nation and abroad, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for granting me the opportunity of bringing my voice from Cuba to this important hearing. I have been a dissident over 22 years, and I have been subjected subjected to surveillance, interrogation, harassment, and searches of my home. Like my late husband, Oscar Espinosa Chepe, I lost my job and arrived to a pension. In 2003, Oscar was in prison with 74 other peaceful Cubans and was sentenced to 20 years. Our only crimes have been speaking out, writing, and seeking the well-being of the Cuban people. For us, that means equal opportunities without discrimination and regardless of political opinions and economic prosperity. As you well know, we have lived under a totalitarian regime since 1959 that brought suffering and exile. In the United States, two million Cubans found that by working hard, they could have the opportunity to enjoy the life they were denied in their own country. In return, they have contributed to this society, and today, in this room, we can address prestigious Cuban-American lawmakers. Meanwhile, for 56 years, the government has, had been hammering Cubans' minds, depriving them of food, clothes, money, entertainment, and internet. 
and closely watching and repressing because the regime found in the United States the suitable culprit for all its failures, wrongdoings, and repression. It said the perils and shortages were due to American imperialism and the embargo. Despite all this, change has taken place in the minds of the people, and not only due to the government's unfulfilled promises and their hopelessness. Since the Obama administration started its proactive people-to-people -people policy in 2009, beginning with Cuban-Americans, a lot has changed. Remittances from relatives and friends help Cubans to survive and even open small businesses. More important, Cubans are increasingly in empowered as they exchange views with Cuban-Americans coming to visit and with other Americans on people-to-people -people programs. The impact on Cuban from sorry, the impact on Cubans from all walks of life traveling to the United States is overwhelming. Here they discover the opportunities offered by democracy and work. It is still hard to describe the amazement Cubans felt on December 17, 2014, when we watched the so-called enemy announcing the new measures. And read, and read President Obama's speech published next to Raul Castro's in the newspapers. Now, everywhere one goes, there is one main issue in conversation, the hope and hope, um, hopeful expectations broadly shared. Yet, there is more to be done. How could anyone understand that you can visit North Korea, but not Cuba, the ability of Americans to interact with Cubans is impeded by restrictions to travel to our country, and this must be ended. Raul Castro is stepping down in three years, and currently he's paving the way for new leaders. This period is crucial for the transition and the future of Cuba, both for civil society and foreign partners. Ro uh, Brazil, Russia, and China are already positioned in Cuba, yet Americans and Cuban Americans are still prevented by their government from participating in economic and commercial relations with Cuba and from contributing to startups in self-employment that offer independence from state-owned economy. While many dissidents and opponents support the new American approach, others do not. Nevertheless, our objectives are the same. Defense of human rights, democratic values, and friendship and assistance to the Cuban people. The path to liberty, respect of human rights and democracy is arduous. And we must always keep in mind that we must not depart from those goals. We welcome advice and support from our friends as we explain to them how Cuba is now and what can serve it better. I believe that is the reason we gather here now. American policy towards the Cuban government has failed for 56 years, so it must be changed. The embargo must be lifted to, benefit, to the benefit of our people and nations. You can only get to know what is going on within the island nation, assist the civil society, and offer expertise of your commercial and economic entrepreneurs by being there. 
reestablishing diplomatic relations will grant a better environment for American diplomats in Cuba to contact the Cuban people and the civil society. Normalizing 56-year-long estrangement will take a long time, but there is now a unique opportunity to assist the people of Cuba, and it must be not wasted. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, just to remind the witnesses as well, your full statements are entered into the record. We, we obviously we're not going to cut you off, but we, uh, to the extent we can keep to the five minutes, which you did, uh, is excellent because it allows us to get all the statements in and then the questions. I, the vote will start momentarily. I'll stay here. Obviously, at some point, I may have to briefly recess to go vote and then return. Uh, but we're going to continue until we hear from everyone. With that, uh, welcome, Ms. Rosa Maria Paya. Can you turn on the microphone? Sorry. And thank you for your invitation, and thanks to the whole committee for taking the time to listen, my friends and I. In recent years, my country has been engaged in a deception. The Cuban government is changing the law, but ignoring the rights of the people, which were sequestered over half of a century ago. More people are allowed to enter and leave the country, but the regime decides who can enjoy this privilege. The migratory reforms have established as a control mechanism. For instance, government has invalidated the, pass the passport of the artist Tania Bruguera just for attending a performance in Havana. The Cuban government has permitted more people to operate small businesses. But due to the Cuban laws, entrepreneurs cannot be a factor to foster democracy because their existence as private owners depends on their submission to the government. There cannot be free markets where there are not free persons. The Cuban government said it would free 53 political prisoners, but instead it released them on parole. Meanwhile, many others were not freed at all. Giovanni Melchor was transferred to a maximum security prison last December. He was put in prison four years ago just for being the son of a member of the Christian Liberation Movement who refused to cooperate with the state security. As my father did four months before he was killed, I denounced the regime's attempt to impose a fraudulent change. And I denounced the interests that hampered a real transition. My father also denounced the attempt to link groups of exiles to this fraudulent change. He said, the diaspora is the diaspora because they are Cuban exiles to whom the regime denied all rights, as they do to all Cubans. In, in such context of oppression without rights and without transparency, the, the insertion of the diaspora would only be part of the fraudulent changes. As the engagement would be fraudulent if the United States were to accept the rule of the Cuban government. We have never asked our people to be isolated or embargoed. But engagement would only be real if it occurs between three peoples. We urge you to truly open up to Cuba. But to advance a helping hand is essential the solidarity with the Cuban citizenry. It is essential to support the peaceful and legal changes that thousands of Cubans have presented to their fellow citizens and to the Cuban parliament, an alternative that allows our people to decide their own future. There is no respect for self-determination of the Cuban people when negotiations are a secret deal between elites. Or when there is no mention that Cubans can participate or be represented in their own society. 
I know that the U.S. Congress and the administration will do what you think is best for this country, which has served as refuge for nearly 20% of our population. But only a real transition to democracy in Cuba can guarantee stability for the hemisphere. We, the Cubans, are not the Chinese. We are not Vietnamese. And we definitely won't accept a Putin-like model toward despotism. The strategy to prevent a mass exodus from Cuba is not by saving the interests of the group now in control. This is an unstable, unstable equilibrium that could end in more social chaos and violence. In fact, this country is already facing a Cuban migratory crisis. Despite the record number of U.S. visas granted, more than 6,500 Cubans arrived in the United States via the Mexican border since last October. And more than 17,000 did so in the previous year. With or without the Cuban Adjustment Act, the situation will get worse because of the attempts of those in power in Cuba for self-preservation of the status quo. We Cubans want real changes to design the, the prosperous country that we deserve and we can build. That way that you pro the way that you have to promote stability in the region is through supporting strategies, strategies that engage popular will to reach the end of the totalitarianism with dignity for everyone. You have the opportunity to support the petition for constitutional plebiscite in favor of multi-party and free elections, already signed by thousands of citizens in the Varela project. The Cuban government wouldn't have dared to carry out its death threat against my father if the U.S. government and the democratic forces of the war have been showing solidarity. If you turned your face impunity rage, while you slept, the regime was conceiving their cleansing of pro-democracy leaders to come, while you sleep, a second generation of dictators is planning with impunity their next crimes. That's why we hope that this Congress demands that the petition for independent investigation regarding to the attack against my father be included in the negotiations with the Cuban government and that we hear publicly what response is given to this point. Don't turn your backs to Cubans again. Don't earn the distrust of the new actors of our inevitably free future in exchange for complicity with a herentocracy who belongs to the Cold War era. I just, I want to conclude with the words that my father wrote to President Obama five years ago. Quote, your government must move forward and extend a hand to the people of the go and to the people and the government of Cuba, but with request, with their request that the hands of Cuban citizens not be tied. Otherwise, the opening will only be for the Cuban government and will be another episode of the international spectacle for hypocrisy. And a spectacle that reinforces oppression and plunges the Cuban people deeper into the lie and total defenselessness. Seriously damages the desires of Cuba for the inevitable changes to be achieved peacefully. The pursuit of friendship between the United States of America and Cuba is inseparable from the pursuit of liberty. We want to be free and be friends. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we have five minutes left in the vote, so what I think I'm going to do is briefly recess for 10 minutes, let the members vote because they do want to hear your testimony, and then we'll continue in 10 minutes with you, Mr. Morua, and, and Ms. Soler. We'll be back in 10 minutes. The committee stands adjourned.
The committee will come to order. We're expecting our colleagues to return momentarily from their vote, and the witnesses are taking their seats. I'll give them a moment to do that. So just by uh, point of process for our witnesses, our, my colleagues have left to take a vote, uh, which should have concluded. They're on their way back, I know. And uh, we're going to continue, with, out of respect for your time, <clears throat> to take your testimony. So if we are ready, Mr. Morua. OK, uh, thank you all for inviting me to, to this uh, hearing here in the United States. Uh, thank you uh, to Senator Boxer, who especially invited me here to stay and to share views with you. And especially I want to thank to Senator Bob Menendez, who supported me in the hard and uh, difficult moment in Cuba under the repression of the Cuban government. But I'm going to continue reading my uh, speech in Spanish because I don't want to see myself smashing uh, English language. So I ask you to, to open your ears and try to understand my, my views. Mi nombre es Manuel Cuesta Morúa. My so name is Manuel Cuesta Morúa. Soy historiador y traté de ser abogado hasta que el régimen determinó que no podía hacerlo. I am a historian and I tried to be a lawyer until the regime determined that I could not be one. Imaginarán por qué. Imagine why. Tengo 52 años, 24 de los cuales los he dedicado a luchar por el cambio democrático. I am 52 years old, 24 of which I have dedicated to fighting for democratic change por el establecimiento de las libertades fundamentales, Establishing fundamental liberties, la lucha por la equidad social, the struggle for social equity, y también por la igualdad racial. And also racial equality. Soy lo que en Europa y América Latina llaman un socialdemócrata. I am what in Europe and Latin America is called a social democrat. Que es alguien que cree en las libertades, en el Estado de Derecho, en el imperio de la ley, en la justicia, en la equidad y en el derecho de las minorías. This is someone who believes in liberties, the rule of law, justice, equality, and minority rights. Muchas cosas para ser logradas en una sola vida. Many things to be accomplished in only one life. Pero persevero. But I will persevere. Soy ante todo un cubano. I am above all a Cuban. Con fe en que las cosas pueden lograrse si insistimos lo suficiente. I have faith in that things can be accomplished if we fight hard enough. Si actuamos según el sentido de lo correcto y si colocamos la razón por encima de la pasión. And if we act according to our moral compass and if we put reason above passion. Soy también un político que cree que la política cambia las cosas y que las emociones pueden destruir los mejores propósitos. I am also a politician who believes that politics can change things and that emotions can destroy the best of intentions. Soy un político y lo soy en Cuba. I am a politician and I am one in Cuba. Lo que significa hoy pensar en la nación cubana por encima de la razón ideológica. 
Today, this means putting the Cuban nation above ideological considerations. Eso significa mirar en lo que considero el mejor interés de mi país antes de lo que considero de más y mejor interés para mi partido. This means looking at what I consider to be in the best interest of my country before I consider what I consider to be in the best interest of my party. Dicho así, pienso que en muchos sentidos mis compatriotas aquí presentes pueden tener un distinto enfoque de, de cómo llegar a la democracia en Cuba, pero no un distinto propósito para la nación y el destino que compartimos. Having said that, I believe that in many ways my compatriots here today can have a different focus on how to achieve democracy in Cuba, but not a different purpose for the nation and the destiny we share. En esto estamos absolutamente juntos. We are absolutely united on this. Mi enfoque después del 17 de diciembre es el que sigue. My focus after December 17th is the following. El cambio de política del gobierno de los Estados Unidos. The policy change announced by the U.S. government. Primero permite pasar del posicionamiento a la acción política. First of all, allows for fostering to make way for political action. Lo que significa que todos los actores estamos obligados a actuar según la política, no la épica. That means that all actors are obliged to act according to policy and not epics. Segundo, coloca el debate democrático en su escenario principal, Cuba. Secondly, this places demo democratic debate on the main stage in Cuba. Tercero, elimina el peso que siempre tiene el conflicto externo entre estados sobre los conflictos internos por la democracia dentro de la estructura actual de las relaciones internacionales. Three, this eliminates the burden of always having the external conflict between states trumping internal conflicts for democracy within the current framework of international relations. Cuarto, permite la discusión abierta de la soberanía política de los ciudadanos por encima de la discusión cerrada de la soberanía que defienden los estados. Four, this allows the open discussion about citizens' political sovereignty above the discussion focused on the sovereignty defended by states. Quinto, destruye la narrativa del Estado cubano frente a la sociedad, narrativa que ha estado basado pedagógicamente en el enfrentamiento natural de Cuba con los Estados Unidos. Five, this destroys the narrative that has been peddled by the Cuban state to its society, a narrative that has been based pedagogically on the natural confrontation between Cuba and the United States. Sexto, desarma la política exterior latinoamericana que ha permitido enmascarar el debate democrático en el hemisferio detrás del conflicto entre el norte y el sur. This disarms the Latin American foreign policy that has allowed in the hemisphere the democratic debate to be disguised by the conflict between North and South. Séptimo, acerca el huidizo Estado cubano y sus malas políticas a los ciudadanos, posibilitando cada vez más la discusión pública del error y del horror del Estado. 
Seven, regarding the evasive Cuban state and its bad policies towards its citizens, this makes the public discussion over the error and horror of the state more possible. Octavo, elimina las coartadas del fracaso del modelo económico, si este alguna vez existió. Eight, this eliminates the alibi of the failed economic model if such a thing ever existed. Nueve, sitúa el importante debate de derechos humanos en Cuba sobre la base del conflicto de valores, no como un conflicto entre estados. Nine, this frames the debate over human rights in Cuba on the basis of a conflict about values, not a conflict among states. Décimo, abre posibilidades al poder blando de la cultura y la diplomacia y no al poder duro de la guerra o el conflicto civil. 10. This opens the possibility of the soft power of culture and diplomacy and not the hard power of war or civil strife. Omseno, hiperventila a un régimen cerrado que ha sido capaz hasta ahora de autodosificar el suministro del oxígeno que le permite sobrevivir. 11. Hyperventilates a closed regime that has been able thus far to control their own dose of oxygen that has allowed it to survive. 12. Abre un camino de legitimación de la sociedad civil frente a actores tanto en América Latina como en los mismos Estados Unidos. 12. Opens the way for the legitimization of civil society among actors in both Latin America and the United States. 13. Destruye la ambigüedad de víctima verdugo en la que se mueve el régimen cubano, exponiéndolo claramente como el verdugo, no solo de los activistas políticos y de derechos humanos, sino del 99% de los ciudadanos. 13. Destroys the Cuban regime's victim tormentor ambiguity, clearly exposing it as the tormentor not only of political and human rights activists, but also of 99% of its citizens. Hay una premisa que me gustaría compartir para poner en perspectiva mi análisis. There is a premise that I would like to share in order to put my analysis in perspective. El autoritarismo cubano no puede sobrevivir a una apertura como sí lo puede hacer y lo ha podido demostrar el autoritarismo chino. Cuban authoritarianism cannot survive an opening the same way that Chinese authoritarianism can and has. Y claro, puede ser sumamente discutible el impacto de la normalización diplomática and que habría que distinguir de la normalización entre los dos países sobre el bienestar estructural del país lo que más importaría si asumimos una clara visión de Estado. And of course, the impact of diplomatic normalization can be debated profusely, which is not the same as normalization among two countries over the structural well-being of the country, which is what should matter the most if a clear vision by the state is assumed. En tal sentido, no creo que se deba confundir libertad económica con liberalización económica. In this sense, I do not believe that we should confuse economic liberty with economic liberalization. No se debe tam confundir tampoco libertad de expresión y de información con mayor penetración informativa y mayor infraestructura tecnológica para que los ciudadanos se informen. 
We cannot also confuse freedom of expression and information with greater access to information and better technological infrastructure for citizens to be informed and... Mucho menos se debe enmascarar la improductividad económica con el endeudamiento comercial que supondría la avalancha de maíz, soja, arroz, aceite, pollo y patata de los Estados Unidos hacia Cuba. Moreover, we should not hide the economic lack of productivity with the trade deficit that would come with an avalanche of corn, soy, rice, oil, chicken and potatoes from the United States to Cuba. A corto plazo, lo que es bueno para la industria norteamericana y los estómagos de la isla probablemente no sea bueno en el largo plazo para nuestro proyecto de país. Pero creo que permite acumular los hechos necesarios para que los cubanos se involucren en la lucha por los derechos imprescindibles. A fin de cuentas, la fuerza del ejemplo cuenta para empujar los cambios. However, I believe that it allows the conditions for Cuba, for Cubans, to get involved in the struggle for fundamental rights. At the end of the day, the force of example goes a long way to push for change. No creo en ningún sentido que el cambio de política de los Estados Unidos nos traiga la libertad. I do not believe that the change in U.S. policy will bring us freedom. Lo que constituye lo mejor. Which would be the best outcome. La libertad de Cuba es cuestión exclusiva de los cubanos, pero créanme que esa nueva política nos brinda mejores opciones para obtenerla por nosotros mismos. The freedom of Cuba is exclusively a matter for Cubans, but believe me, that new policy will give us better options for us to obtain it by ourselves. Desde luego, una cosa es una nueva política y otra es la percepción sobre la nueva política. Obviously, one thing is a new policy and the other is what is perceived about that new policy. El modo en que la comunidad, cu en la, en que la comunidad democrática cubana supo de los cambios introducidos por la administración Obama crearon la sensación de que la normalización de relaciones diplomáticas entre estados suponía la normalización internacional del régimen cubano. The way in which the democratic community in Cuba learned of the new policy introduced by the administration created the sense that the normalization of diplomatic relations between states also supposed an international normalization for the Cuban regime. Ello significó de inmediato una nueva división a mi modo artificial, entre los que supuestamente apoyan el enfoque blando y los que apoyan el enfoque duro, como si eso fuera equivalente a la división entre los defensores de los derechos humanos y las libertades fundamentales en Cuba. This immediately led to a new division, an artificial one, in one in which, in my view, between those with a soft focus and those with a hard one, as if this was the equivalent of a division among those who defend human rights and basic freedoms in Cuba. Debo adelantarles la noticia de que eso no es cierto. I would like to break the news to you that this is not the case. Mi experiencia de los últimos días junto a cubanos en la isla, en Estados Unidos y en Puerto Rico, es que caminamos y podemos caminar juntos precisamente y gracias a nuestras diferencias. 
My experience in the last few days together with Cubans on the island in the United States and Puerto Rico is that we walk and can walk together precisely thanks to our differences. En los últimos días, muchos cubanos hemos asumido un nuevo mantra. In the past few days, many people have adopted a new mantra. Las diferencias enriquecen a las naciones, no las debilitan. Differences enrich nations instead of weakening them. Miriam Leiva, Berta Soler, Rosa Maria, y Manuel Cuesta están juntos en el propósito mayor de la democracia y el bienestar de Cuba. Gracias a que somos diferentes. Miriam Leiva, Berta Soler, Rosa Maria, and Manuel Cuesta are together in the greater goal for democracy and the well-being of Cuba, thanks to the fact that they are all different. Y permítame una sugerencia. Allow me to make a suggestion. Los Estados Unidos pueden acercarse a la comunidad democrática cubana en toda su pluralidad y sostener con ella una conversación franca, sosegada y honesta. Verán que la, raz que la razón prevalece. Thank you very much. The United States can engage the Cuban democratic community with all its plurality and sustain a frank, measured and honest conversation with it. You will see that reason prevails. Thank you. Uh, and Ms. Soler. Señorita Soler. Senator Marco Rubio. Distinguidos miembros del Senado. Distinguished members of the Senate. Ante todo, quiero darle las gracias a ustedes por escucharme. Before all, I want to thank you for listening. Vivimos en la actualidad un momento especialmente definitorio para el futuro de nuestra nación. We live presently a particularly defining moment for the future of our country. Tras la recién reciente anuncio de restablecimiento de las relaciones entre Cuba y los Estados Unidos. In the wake of the recent announced reestablishment of diplomatic relations between Cuba and the United States. Me presento ante ustedes como la líder de las damas de blanco. Agrupación de Mujeres Activistas por un Cambio Hacia la Democracia en Nuestra Nación por Vía No Violenta. I am appearing here as the leader of the Ladies in White, a group of women activists who support change towards democracy in our country through non-violent means. Inspirada en el ejemplo de mujeres como Rosa Pan, Coretta King, entre otras. Inspired by the example of women such as Rosa Parks and Coretta King, among others. Que con su coraje y determinación trazaron senderos para el pleno disfrute de los derechos civiles en, una, en esta gran nación. Who with courage and determination blazed paths for the full enjoyment of civil rights in this country. A 50 años de los acontecimientos en Selma, Alabama. Now 50 years after the events in Selma, Alabama, y testimonio ante su subcomité eh, que entre otras funciones atiende los asuntos mundiales de la mujer, and testifying before a subcommittee whose mandate includes global women's issues, es para mí un gran honor y una oportunidad histórica comparecer ante ustedes. It is a great honor and an historic opportunity for me to appear before you. Hablo también 
a nombre de numerosos líderes y activistas de la sociedad civil cubana que me han encomendado la tarea de llevar su voz ante ustedes. I also speak on behalf of numerous leaders and activists from Cuba, civil society, who have entrusted me with speaking for them before you. Es una sociedad civil que se encuentra particularmente reprimida por la intolerancia de un gobierno cuyo ejercicio del poder consiste en la violación sistemática de los derechos humanos al pueblo cubano. It is a civil society that is particularly repressed by the intolerance of a government whose exercise of power consists of the systematic violation of the human rights of the Cuban people. Justo antes de salir de Cuba para asistir a este evento. Just before I left Cuba in order to appear for this event. El pasado 28 de enero, día que recordamos el natalicio del apóstol José Martín, docenas de activistas fueron arrestados en La Habana y otros en, otra, y yo, en otras provincias por intentar colocar ofrendas florales en busto de José Martín. Last January 28th, we celebrate the birth of a founding father, Jose Marti. And just before I left Cuba, dozens of activists were arrested in Havana and other provinces for attempting to place offerings of flowers at statues of Jose Marti. En su visión totalitaria, la dictadura pretende monopolizar la identidad nacional por medio de uso de la fuerza contra cualquier activista independiente. In its totalitarian vision, the dictatorship seeks a monopoly on our national identity through the use of force against all independent activists. Las violaciones de los derechos humanos en Cuba han sido documentadas por organismos internacionales más respetados en la materia. The most respected international human rights organizations have documented violations of human rights in Cuba. El 28 de octubre de 2013, la Comisión Interamericana de Derechos Humanos emitió una medida cautelar en favor de todas las integrantes de las Damas de Blanco como protección frente a la sistemática represión de las autoridades cubanas. On October 23, 2013, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights issued an injunction on behalf of members of the Ladies in White to afford protection in the face of systematic repression by Cuban authorities. Presento ante ustedes el dictamen oficial de la Comisión a estos efectos. Ajunto además un informe de Cualet eh, sobre el sistema penitenciario cubano. I submit the official precautionary measure issued by the Commission for these purposes, as well as the report submitted to the Commission by the Association of Independent Cuban Lawyers, CubaLex, which initiated the case before the Commission. Solicito que estos informes sean incorporados a las actas de, este, de esta audiencia como prueba documental de lo que aquí exponemos. I request that these reports be made part of the record of this hearing as documentary evidence of our testimony. Estos documentos demuestran que el tema de los presos políticos, uno de los más sensibles en la realidad cubana actual. These documents demonstrate that the subject of political prisoners, one of the most sensitive issues in Cuba today, va mucho, va mucho más allá de la liberación circunstancial o periódica de algunos de ellos. 
reaches far beyond the occasional or periodic release of some of them. Para resolver esta cuestión se requiere una libertad incondicional de todos los encarcelados por motivos políticos en la isla. Resolving this matter requires the unconditional freeing of everyone who has been jailed for political reasons on the island. Y la eliminación de todos los disposiciones legales que avalan la represión contra quienes piensan diferente del régimen. And the elimination of all legal restrictions used to repress those who think differently from the regime. Cuba sigue siendo un país con un gobierno unipartidista. Cuba continues to be a country with a one-party government. Donde las libertades fundamentales que son derechos absolutos en la sociedad norteamericana constituye delito contra lo que llamamos la seguridad, la seguridad del Estado. Where fundamental freedoms that are an absolute right in North American society are crimes against what they regard as state security. En Cuba no existe la separación de poderes. Las libertades de expresión y asociación continúan siendo reprimidas en la constitución establecida que el Partido Comunista es la fuerza rectora de la sociedad. Separation of powers does not exist in Cuba. Freedom of expression and association continue to be repressed, and the Constitution establishes the Communist Party as the driving force for society. El derecho a la huelga se considera un crimen, y los trabajadores cubanos dentro de la isla y en el extranjero son sometidos a condiciones de trabajo esclavo. The right to strike is regarded as a crime with workers on and off the island subject to conditions of labor slavery. Denunciado por organismos internacionales. Which have been denounced by international organizations. Mientras estas condiciones prevalezcan, no es posible hablar de una voluntad a cambio por parte del régimen castrista. While these conditions prevail, it is not possible to speak of a willingness to change on the part of the Castro regime. El 28 de enero, durante su comparecencia en la tercera cumbre de la CELAT, celebrada en San José de Costa Rica, el dictador Raúl Castro expresó, no cederemos un minuto, un, sí, un, un metro. The same, that same January 28th, <laughs> during his appearance before the third summit, summit of the Community of Latin American and Caribbean States, CELAC, held in San Jose, Costa Rica, the dictator Raul Castro stated that Cuba will not give up one millimeter. Perdón, no cederemos un, minuto, un metro. <laughs> Perdón. Para, nos, para nosotros, eso significa una continuidad de las golpizas, encarcelamiento, destierro forzoso, discriminación contra nuestros hijos en, las, en los sistemas escolares. For us, this signals the continuation of beatings, jailing, forced exile, discrimination against our children at school, and all manner of patterns of intimidation and abuse we suffer. 
y todo tipo de, de patrón de intimidación y acoso que sufrimos a diario por, por, por querer una Cuba plural, democrática e inclusiva. And again, all manner of patterns of intimidation and abuse we suffer daily for wanting to see a pluralistic society, democratic and inclusive in Cuba. Nuestras aspiraciones son legítimas por estar avaladas por la Declaración Universal de Derechos Humanos. Our aspirations are legitimate because they are undergirded by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. De la cual Cuba es signataria y los pactos internacionales de derechos civiles y políticos firmados y no ratificados por la dictadura. To which Cuba is a party and the signed international pacts on civil and political rights which have not been ratified by the di dictatorship. Nuestras demandas son bien concretas. Our demands are quite concrete. Libertad para los presos políticos, reconocimiento de la sociedad civil, la eliminación de todas las figuras delictivas que penalizan la libertad de expresión y asociación y el derecho del pueblo de Cuba a elegir su destino por medio de elecciones libres y plurales. Freedom for political prisoners, recognition of civil society, the elimination of all criminal dispositions that penalize freedom of expression and association, and the right of the Cuban people to choose their future through free multi-party elections. Consideramos que estas demandas son justas y válidas. We believe these demands are just and valid. Más importante aún, para nosotros, representa el ejercicio más concreto de política, un paso en la dirección de la convivencia democrática. Even more importantly for us, they represent the most concrete exercise of politics, a step in the direction of democratic coexistence. Cuba cambia cuando cambian las leyes que amparan y protegen las conductas criminales con que actúan las fuerzas represivas y los elementos corruptos que sostienen al régimen. Cuba will change when the laws that enable and protect the criminal behavior of the forces of repression and corrupt elements that sustain the regime of the regime change. En nombre de los fusilados, en nombre de los presos políticos cubanos, en nombre de los pilotos de la organización humanitaria en manos a rescate, asesinados por orden de Fidel Castro, en nombre de las víctimas del reconvocador 13 de marzo, en nombre de las víctimas del régimen comunista de Cuba, Cuba sí, Castro no. Muchas gracias. In the name of those who have been executed by firing squads, in the name of Cuban political prisoners, in the name of the pilots from the humanitarian organizations, Brothers of the Rescue murdered on Fidel Castro's orders, in the name of the victims from the March 13th tugboat, in the name of the victims of Cuban's communist regime, Cuba, yes, Castro, no. Thank you, and that last sentence needed no translation, and it was well, well understood. Thank you all for being here today. I have uh, some questions I know that my colleagues do as well. Um, so let me begin. Um, for all four members of the panel, this is just in, for respect for time. Uh, if you wish to elaborate, of course you can, but this is a pretty straightforward question. It would be, no matter how you feel about the new policy towards Cuba, 
do I take it that all four of you agree that it would be a mistake to move forward on these policies without direct consultation and step-by-step -step partnership with civil society and the uh, democratic opposition on the island? If I understand you, is that if the American government has to ask or talk with us for each step it takes, is that what you mean? No. My question is, would it be a mistake to move forward on changes with, with, with policy towards Cuba without direct and ongoing consultation with civil society and the democratic opposition on the island? I still see it the same way. Okay. Anybody else would... Yeah, if I understand, uh, you're putting uh, the step of talking with us, of, of consultation with the civil society and with the opposition, and I think that, of course, that's important for the future of this engagement, if, if that this engagement is going to be for the good of the Cuban citizens, but not just. What, what, when I, what I want to be clear is that I think it's important to talk with the civil society, to talk with the opposition, and also to put into the table of negotiations the voices of the citizenry. We are not just asking for recognition for the civil society of the opposition. This is not a partition scene, but the Cuban citizens has very specific demands, uh, uh, which are the demands of the Varela project, but are elemental demands that uh, we share with the democratic countries. And I hope that that demands also be on the table of negotiation. Thank you. Sí, yo creo que en lo adelante, mirando no al pasado sino al futuro, se debe establecer un canal sistemático, permanente de intercambio con la comunidad democrática cubana, dentro y fuera de la isla. Bueno, eh, puedo decirles sí, que... Es, es, perdón, interpretar eso, ¿ok? Es que él tiene que traducir, él tiene que traducir. I believe that it's very important to maintain a continuous channel, a systematic approach for communication with the Cuban community, both within and outside of Cuba, in this process. Yeah. Bueno, eh, quiero decirles que realmente el gobierno cubano no es un gobierno soberano. Es un gobierno que no ha sido elegido la soberanía de Cuba es el pueblo de Cuba y siempre deben de escuchar las opiniones del pueblo de Cuba. Es muy importante oír y escuchar las opiniones del pueblo de Cuba, puesto que estamos, puesto que estamos presentes a un gobierno que no es soberano. I believe it's very important to note that really the government of Cuba is not sovereign because it was not elected. It's the people who are the owners or the possessors of the sovereignty of the nation. And so it's very important that we, the people, be listened to and heard during this process. Okay, my second question of the panel is, there are some in American politics who believe that democracy program and aid on behalf of the United States to the opposition in Cuba and civil society is an irritant that complicates and poisons the relationship between the United States and Cuba. Do you agree or disagree with my position that these democracy programs are essential to help the civil society and the democratic opposition in Cuba flourish and be prepared to take part in what hopefully will be a free and democratic Cuba in the future? Well, I think that uh, the 
programs, thank you. I think that the programs should be directly, directed directly to the Cuban civil society. The problem is that a great budget has been de destined to these goals, and most of them, most of the money, hasn't gone directly to the to the opposition. And the problem is again that the Cuban government says that we are mercenaries, we are paid by the American imperialism or the American government, and we have been taken to prison because of that. So I think the best is to analyze what would be the best for the, for, to, to support, to help the, the civil society. Listen to us. And it's a matter, uh, it's a very wide uh, range. I think up to now, the exchange of views, the way we have been uh, having relations with the uh, intersection, with the government, and with delegations uh, from Senate, Congress, etc., and also the way these uh, new measures of the uh, uh, administration is, uh, can take place, can be promoted. Well, I think it's, it, it should be the whole idea, not only We'll send money and through channels and maybe some get to you and you go to prison. That's what I felt all these years. My husband, Oscar Espinosa Chepe, was sentenced 20 years in jail and some of the crimes he was supposed to be committing was receiving money from the American government, which was not true. So that is why I think it's very, very uh, serious. It's a very serious matter and it should be very well uh, treated and analyzed. Yeah, I think that if the government of the United States were to accept all the repressive rules of the Cuban government, that's not going to be a, a good for our people. This engagement would be another part of the fraudulent changes if, if the United States government just accept all these uh, repressive and unfair rules that the Cuban government has with their own citizenry. I think that you have the opportunity uh, to, uh, to support the real demands of the citizens, but this approach, this engagement, only be true, only be good if it is performed between three persons. Sí, creo que la solidaridad global se debe mantener la ayuda a los que en Cuba, de alguna manera, estamos luchando por la democracia en, en, en el país, del mismo modo que el gobierno cubano ayuda a su gente en el resto del mundo. No creo que eso dificulte la normalización de relaciones diplomáticas entre los estados, porque muchos estados justamente tienen programas políticas para ayudar a su gente en el resto del mundo. Bueno, I believe that it's very important to maintain global solidarity with regard to helping Cuba with this struggle. It's very important uh, to help the people within the country and outside of the country. And we see examples of how different states do this with programs, etc., involved with the people. Bueno, es muy importante de que la ayuda que siempre ha dado el gobierno norteamericano al pueblo de Cuba eh, siga y que sea muy directo al pueblo de Cuba y a la sociedad civil. 
puesto que el gobierno cubano lo que hace es los recursos que llegan a sus manos, de en vez de emplearlo para el pueblo, lo emplea para reprimir y fortalecer su maquinaria represiva. Quiero decirles que eh, realmente eh, nosotros, eh, por la ayuda que tenemos por parte del de, de gobierno norteamericano con los celulares, eh, con eh, las lactos, y también de los hermanos exiliados y las personas de buena voluntad, eh, también a través de la información que tenemos a través de Radio Martí y TV Martí, esto ayuda mucho al pueblo, pero también ayuda mucho a la sociedad civil, porque sabemos qué está, qué está pasando en un lugar o en otro. Y sí pienso de que es muy importante que los recursos siempre lleguen directamente al pueblo, a la sociedad civil, porque siempre el gobierno cubano va a tener una excusa y siempre va a decir que somos mercenarios. En este momento, el gobierno cubano dice que hay anticomunista y antiimperialista. No es así. Somos o soy anticomunista, pero antiimperialista no lo soy. And my final question for you, Ms. Soler. Um, excuse I'm me, sorry. the interpretation. Yes, I think... I understood. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, it's very important that the U.S. government continue to help Cuba, but that the aid be directed to the people, to civil society, and not to the government, because unfortunately the government uses the resources that are sent to repress the people. And... Um, So this is a problem when the funds go to help the government. Things like cell phones and the contributions made by the exiles um, are a very good will, and this is helpful. And the information that we receive from TV Marti and Radio Marti is wonderful because it lets us know what's going on in the world. It helps civil society. So it's very important that the resources go directly to the people and civil society because um, in Cuba they will always say that we're mercenaries and that we're anti-communist and anti-imperialist. But the truth is I'm anti-communist but not anti-imperialist. Thank you. And just uh, what I told Senator Flake is don't worry about the translation. I'll let them know later what they're saying. So <laughs> my final question, Ms. Soler. Uh, you've met President Obama before, correct? Sí, correcto. In yes, November, correct. I believe it was in November of 2013. Or 2012. Sí, correcto. Okay. Yes, correct. At that time, did President Obama indicate to you that if any changes uh, policy towards Cuba would first be consulted with groups like yourselves, like the ladies in white? No, mire, eh, realmente no ha sido así. Recuerden que yo soy una mujer más, una cubana más, que no tiene por qué ningún gobierno contar conmigo, ni, eh, pero sí es muy importante de que vivimos en un país donde no hay soberanía, que la soberanía del país es el pueblo, no es el gobierno, es muy importante, como decía anteriormente, escuchar las opiniones, porque vivimos en un país donde el gobierno no es no fue elegido, un gobierno de un gobierno totalitario, pero además quiero decir algo. Para hacer negocio con un tirano, con un criminal, hay que condicionarlo. Lo más importante es que condicionar conforme Raúl Castro está condicionando al gobierno de Estados no, that, that's really not the way it was. I'm actually, 
just another woman, another Cuban woman. There's no reason for a government to count on me for any type of uh, opinions and things like that. The important point is that um, the government of Cuba is really not sovereign because they're not elected. They're a totalitarian government. They were not elected by the people. And what's important is for the people to be listened to. That's what really needs to be hap happening. And you can't do business with a tyrant. It just doesn't work that way. And rather than establishing conditions from the US to Cuba, Raul will be establishing conditions for the US if you let him. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And it's regretful that uh, the way the time has gone that so many of our colleagues can't be here because this is the part of uh, Cuba that uh, members need to hear uh, because there is this romanticism uh, but not the harsh reality of heroic individuals like these uh, who every day languish inside of Cuba to create a greater space for civil society, human rights, and democracy. And we sort of like sweep that away. People will say, oh, yes, I know there are violations. And then we go on to let's do business, let's travel, let's do everything else. And this needs to have, in my mind, the equal stature. And so I appreciate uh, you continuing the hearing and making sure all of these people are heard. I have a great deal of respect for all of you um, because it's easier to talk about democracy and human rights outside of a country that represses it. It's much more difficult to fight and languish inside of a country that ultimately does not allow its citizens its basic rights. And uh, Mrs. Leva, I, I, you have my deep condolences on the loss of your husband, who I greatly admired. Mr. Paya, you have my condolences on the loss of your father, who I also admire. And Mr. Cuesta Morea, I, I appreciate that you acknowledge my recognition of what you did in creating a parallel effort in civil society when Central and Latin American leaders uh, were meeting, which you were repressed at. But what I'm really thankful is to individuals like you who actually tried to do that under an oppressive system and tried to create an independent voice for civil society. So my thanks goes to you, not to me. Um, now, uh, I want to just take a couple of minutes here because those of us who follow these issues uh, are deeply immersed in, it, immersed in it, but I don't know necessarily that others are. So, Mrs. Payal, your father led a civil society effort inside of Cuba by seeking to petition the government under the existing Cuban constitution for a redress of certain grievances that its people wanted and got thousands of signatures. Is, is that a fair statement? Yes, it yeah. is. And uh, basically what he was trying to do is create greater openings uh, for uh, the Cuban people within the context of the Cuban constitution. Is that fair to say? It would be, yes. Yes. And could you briefly describe what some of those uh, openings that your father was petitioning for uh, were? Of course, and uh, well, the, the most elemental ones. We, uh, and when I said we, is because even when my father was the, the center of the Varela project, uh, the Varela project doesn't belong to my father or to the opposition, it belongs to the citizenry, to the Cuban citizens. And more than 25,000 of Cuban citizens 
in the middle of the closure of the fear and facing repression, dare to put their names, their address, and their ID number and ask to the Cuban parliament for ask to the rest of the Cubans in a plebiscite for changing the law to guarantee free association, free expression, the liberation of the political prisoners, the real right to have free and private enterprises, and change the electoral law in order to have free, competitive, and multi-party elections. So 20, 25,000 Cubans signed on to this petition. The Constitution asked for 10,000 of Cubans, and more than 25,000 of signatures were delivered. To seek those basic uh, uh, democratic and human rights principles that we uh, enjoy here at home and observe throughout most of the world. And he did this with others following him under the existing Cuban Constitution. Is that right? Yes. This, uh, sorry, we are actually still waiting for the answer of the Cuban Parliament. He's, yeah. he, they are obligated by the Constitution to answer, and they haven't. Okay. And there was an answer in one respect, and that was you believe that your father was assassinated. I know that my father was assassinated. And can you say why you believe that? Well, we have, uh, we have accumulated a lot of evidence. We have talked with the, uh, with the survivors. One of them actually have published a book talking about how the state security uh, hit their car and then moved uh, the, the two survivors, first hit the survivors and then moved it away, and they just know that my father and Harold Cepero were alive and, uh, and pretty much good, I think, ilesos, I don't know how to say that in English. Uninjured. Uninjured uh, after, the, after the car was hidden. And uh, four hours ago, my father was dead and my dear friend Harold Cepero died on the hospital we know that without medical attention. So that was the regime's answer. Uh, Mrs. Solel, the ladies in white march every Sunday uh, on their way to church in a peaceful manner. Is that fair to say? Sí, correcto. Yes, and, correct. And the purpose of your peaceful march is to protest the arrests of your sons or husbands who have been arrested simply because of their political views or statements or activities? No, mire, eh, realmente no es así. El gobierno cubano eh, realmente nos impide realizar, ejercer nuestra libertad religiosa y de expresión y de eh, eh, asociación y de movimiento. Todos los domingos, a lo largo y ancho de todo el país, son reportadas damas de blanco detenidas solamente por ejercer su libertad religiosa. Puedo poner el ejemplo, domingo 18, domingo, domingos 11 y 18 de enero, dos damas de blanco en la provincia de Oquín fueron detenidas en un carro de patrulla y estuvieron más de cuatro horas encerradas sin ventilación alguna. Esto es lo que hace el gobierno cubano. El gobierno cubano después 
de estas eh, de estas nuevas eh, relaciones que se van que se establece restablecen con el gobierno cubano y el gobierno norteamericano no ha respetado los derechos humanos y puedo ponerle un ejemplo el día 10 de diciembre eh, cuando muchas activistas de derechos humanos y aquí tengo fotos aquí están damas de blanco quisieron participar Ejercer su libertad de asociación de movimiento, el gobierno cubano las arrestó, los arrestó a activistas de otras organizaciones, no solo damas de blanco, y los llevó a calabozo solamente por decir, vivan los derechos humanos, libertad para el pueblo de Cuba. También puedo ponerle un ejemplo, el día 30 de diciembre. Un momento, por favor. Well, no, that's not exactly how it was. The truth is that the government of Cuba represses our right to religious freedom, represses our right to movement, freedom of movement and association. Every Sunday, the, the ladies in white are um, going out to participate in religious activities. And they are, uh, one example would be um, they, on the 18th of January, on Sunday, two ladies in white were detained in a patrol car and kept there for four hours without oxygen. Um, the government is constantly repressing not only the ladies in white, but many activists such who are trying to exercise these rights of gathering together to discuss matters of importance to them. For example, on December 10th, uh, ladies in white who wanted again to exercise their right to freedom of association were thrown in jail um, by the repressive forces of the Cuban government just because they said, long live human rights. Mr. Chairman, may I have one final question, if I may? Uh, Mr. Costamora, uh, this effort at creating a parallel civil discourse of civil society inside of Cuba, which you tried with the last Latin American summit of CELA, uh, are you going to try to do that at the upcoming summit of the Americas? And how can we be helpful if there's any way to be helpful? without impinging on it, because I, I assume even your testimony here today can be considered mercenaries if the Castro regime wants to claim it as such. Uh, so that's, that's a challenge. But I'm interested in your continuous effort to create a parallel civil society track so that they, the voices of all of you and many others can be heard uh, in these discussions in the days ahead. And thank you, Mr. Chairman. Sí, efectivamente. Yes, of course. Uh, Primero, el gobierno cubano no tiene mucha credibilidad, de modo que no hay que hacerle mucho caso a su discurso. The Cuban government doesn't have much credibility. People don't pay much attention to what they say. Vamos a intentar organizar una cumbre paralela. We, we did try to carry out a parallel summit. We are going to, the interpreter corrects, we are going to try to carry out a parallel Siguiendo la tradición del intento de organizar una cumbre paralela cuando se celebró la CELAC en La Habana. Of the time when we tried to do the same when CELAC was held in Panama. We tried to do the same thing there following that tradition. De hecho, vamos a tratar de organizar dos cumbres paralelas, una en Cuba y otra en Panamá. In fact, we're going to attempt to have two parallel summits, one in Cuba and the other in Panama. Y ya estamos dando los pasos con la comunidad democrática en el exilio, o sea, en Miami, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, 
para asistir a la cumbre de Panamá con una sola voz. We are working with democratic society groups to, in New Jersey, Miami, Puerto Rico, and other places to be able to attend and to have one voice. Y lo mismo hacerlo en La Habana para aquellos cubanos que obviamente no van a poder asistir a Panamá puedan expresar desde la isla su voz a la Organización de Estados Americanos. And also to carry out a summit, a parallel one, in Havana for those Cubans who cannot go to Panama in order to participate as well and have their voices heard with the OAS. Y por supuesto que la ayuda y la solidaridad es bienvenida desde los Estados Unidos. And of course we welcome the solidarity of the United States. It is welcomed. En la forma en que esta solidaridad y esta ayuda se pueda verificar. In the manner in which this solidarity can be accomplished. Mi respeto y admiración para todos ustedes. Gracias. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Menendez and Senator Flake. Thank you. And, and again, Mr. Chairman, thank you for holding this hearing. And this has been very enlightening. I wish, as uh, was said, that uh, all of our colleagues could hear what you said. And I'm sure they're following it and their staff is as well. But I just want to say how much I admire you, all of you, uh, for what you are doing. I've uh, traveled to Cuba a number of times and have met with uh, Ms. Leva and, uh, and your husband uh, in prior years, and uh, I've, I've seen what the ladies in white have done and uh, the work of uh, uh, your father is just uh, inspiring to everyone. And I, I just can't say enough about uh, what you do and continue to do in the face of uh, varying trying circumstances. But uh, Ms. Leva, in a letter to the New York Times, you noted uh, that, quote, since the Obama administration started people-to-people -people policy and uh, or expanded the people-to-people -people policy in 2009, encouraging exchanges between Americans and Cubans, a lot has changed, and that Cubans are feeling empowered by exchanges of views with Cuban Americans uh, coming to visit and Americans on cultural, academic, scientific, religious, sport, and other trade trips. How, how do trips like that, particularly um, since Cuban-Americans can travel freely uh, back to, to Cuba, how has that changed things? Well, not only because they have sent remittances or they bring presents, but uh, mainly because they can, uh, they expose, they talk to the families, to the friends of how working hard, they have a great, great possibilities of improving their lives and also helping the Cubans in, in Cuba. And uh, also, uh, these remittances uh, help uh, open uh, new businesses, these small, very small businesses, it's true. But I think it's the, let's say, it's the, the, the seed for a future a bigger business in Cuba, and that's what we, we, we expect. Uh, so when, when somebody has a, a small business, then he has to hire others, or he has to sell and, and, and he, it, it's, it's like a web. They get to be independent. And now, uh, after these uh, new measures uh, taken uh, by the president, uh, there is a, a sense of uh, happiness, of hope in Cuba among the population, most of the people. Because there's not going to be this, uh, this uh, atmosphere of confrontation, but also because they sense that there could be opportunities for everyone. Of course, there was a great frustration because the government, Raul Castro, <laughs> promised a lot, promised changes, and, and nothing, uh, well, almost nothing was uh, uh, fulfilled. 
And people said, well, these people, are, this is the same, and, and, and we're not going to have, be able to build our future. We're not going to have to, our present, we're not going to have a future. So now people see uh, other possibilities. Of course, they know that this depends on how the Cuban government is uh, um, willing to uh, admit the, the, the new measures of the United States, because you can be, uh, you can open for uh, someone to send. Um, um, tools for a, a new business and maybe in the customs you can uh, get it get them in so of course people are afraid and of course and also people are afraid that if here in the United States you change the um, the law of uh, how do you call it for coming to Cuba uh, from, from Cuba to the United States Cuban Adjustment Act the, the Cuban Adjustment Act is uh, changed or if uh, this wet mm, dry wet and mm, mm, Wet foot, dry foot. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's uh, it's canceled. They are afraid that they won't be able to get to the United States, those that want to get here. So I think that that is one of the causes that is increasing uh, the flow of, of Cubans coming more uh, rapidly since December, because they are afraid that if it's closed, uh, 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 they would not be uh, able to get here. So I think this is also a, a some, something that should be thought because uh, this could create a tense uh, atmosphere be between the governments and uh, uh, imagine a new flow of Cubans coming to the United States and a, 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 a tough situation in the United States. So I think that all this is uh, uh, very complex, I know, and, and, and we're hoping that we can help solve all. Well, thank you, thank you. Mrs. Paya, as I mentioned, I'm a huge admirer of your father and what he did, and uh, I've quoted him often in, in, a, in a piece in the New York Times uh, in 2003, I think, and then I uh, was fond of a quote that ran in the Time story on him. He said, it said, Paya reiterated his opposition to the U.S. trade embargo against Cuba because he said it gave Castro a convenient excuse for his economic failures. I, I think that that's something that a lot of us have always believed. But he also point, pointed out, he said, I'm for all Americans traveling to Cuba. But he said, uh, please don't think that Cuba will be democratized by people coming to dance salsa and smoke cigars. <laughs> and so I think that's certainly true as well. For Americans who are able now, more Americans, to travel to Cuba, what would be your advice uh, to how they can help the Cuban people? Well, definitely with Mojitos and Cuba Libres, we are not going to free our island. I, I think that it would be great if there are more um, relation with the real Cubans, with, with the people that is suffering the repression of the Cuban government, which are all the citizenry. But what is also important to pay attention to is that it's not the American government and not the American's laws, the ones who have kidnapped the strikes of the citizenry. Right. And the opportunity, there are no more opportunities for the Cuban people because the Cuban's law hasn't changed. I think that this new policy, I think that this new dialogue could be good if it is addressed with responsibility and with transparency. Mm -hmm. Not more secrets, 
and I actually hope that the voice of the Cuban citizens that has been raised in the past for very specific and concrete demands be on that table of negotiation. Otherwise, mojitos, cuba libres, and salsa, that's just going to be more of this long history. All right. Well, thank you. My time is up. I appreciate this. Thank you all for your patience today. I know it's been a long hearing. We've spent more time today on Cuba than we have the four years that I've been here. And if there's a silver lining in all this is that for the first time, certainly in my time in the Senate, and probably in a decade, when something is going on in Cuba now, a human rights abuse, uh, any sort of outrage, it now is news in the United States. And I hope that today's hearing served not just to educate my colleagues, but a broader sector of the American public about the Cuban reality, what the people of Cuba are facing, and hopefully what the opportunities are moving forward. But I want to thank all four of you for being here. I recognize that being here today, and we take this for granted, we have witnesses before this committee all the time who may say something that leads them to criticism in a blog or in the press. But appearing here today, testifying here today, puts many of you in real danger of being detained, of being harassed, and the people you love of, of the same. In fact, many, all of you have experienced that in the past as well. It's a liberty that sometimes those of us who have been born and raised here in this country take for granted, and we shouldn't. Just 90 miles from our shores is a place where the sorts of things that we do here as a matter of course disagree and open with our government, with our leaders, is punishable by imprisonment and in throughout its history, death on the island of Cuba. All of us share the same goal. I don't think that's in dispute. Every single member of this committee, I believe the vast majority of the American people, and I, this administration, as long as the leadership of my party, all share the goal of a free and democratic Cuba. What we're having now is a debate about the best way to bring that about, and differences of opinion, as exhibited not just by our panel, but by those here today on this committee, as to the best way to achieve it. The good thing is that those of us on the American side of the debate are able to debate those differences openly, democratically, and we hope that in a future Cuba, all of civil society and all Cubans will be able to disagree with their leaders will be, and do so without risking imprisonment or jail, but also to be represented by elected representatives who work for you, who are accountable to you in the, vo in the votes that they take and the decisions that they make. I hope that in the future Cuba there will be a free press so that you can gather news from any sources you want. I hope that in the future Cuba you'll be able to organize yourselves into political parties if you so choose. I hope that in the future Cuba everyone uh, will be able to participate in the future of the country. And, and that is our hope here is to see what we can do with American foreign policy to bring that day about soon. It's been a very long time. Many generations, many people have seen mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters pass away without being able to be reunited. Uh, many people hope for that future will come soon. We've been waiting a long time. Thank you. God bless all of you for being here. Muchísimas gracias. Thank you. The uh, record will remain open until the close of business tomorrow, February 4th. With that, this hearing is adjourned.